Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. If you're writing a Western, it's relatively easy to build it around a shootout. It's harder to come up with a story about the relationships between the characters and still make it taut and suspenseful. But that's what writer Ann Dowd did for Have Gun Will Travel more than once. Case in point, an assignment for Paladin that requires him to help an old friend. Is there money involved? Lots of it at a certain gold mine. But there's a twist, a clever one. Our story is called Lucky Penny. This is Have Gun Will Travel from May 29, 1960. The old man doesn't have long to live. If he learns the truth about his gold mine, it might be the end of him. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Mr. Paladin. Uh, over here, hey boy. Oh, Esau, didn't see you sit over in corner, slide down in chair, feet up on stool, smoky cigar, uh, like man with nothing on mind. Do I give that impression? Yes, sir. Well, you're quite right. You see before you, hey boy, a man enjoying his leisure. Now, what can I do for you? Oh, uh, here. Ah, uh, telegram. Thank you. Ah, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Can you get up here? Well, he doesn't waste words, does he? Signed, Matthew Pen... Matthew Penrod. You know this man, huh? Well, hey, boy, there was a time when I guess just about everybody knew Matt Penrod, or at least knew about him. Did you ever hear of the Lucky Penny Mine? The Lucky Penny Mine? Yeah. No. Well, anyway, it's up above Prescott in Arizona Territory. Matt Penrod had prospected for years all over the West with no luck. And finally, he was down to his last penny. And the story is he flipped the coin, tails, he'd forget the whole thing, and heads, he'd give it one more try. And the penny came up, heads. Oh, so? Uh, that when he found the Lucky Penny Mine... Uh, did he make a biggie strike? <laughs> a big one. A lot of gold was taken out of the lucky penny. Then poor Matt Devane ran out overnight, completely gone. Oh, too bad. Matt wouldn't believe the mine was worked out, and he kept pouring more money into the thing until, well, he finally went broke. And the last time I saw him, he was still there in that shut-down mine, digging around, looking for that lost vein. Oh, he don't give up, eh? Oh, sort of sad, too. I wonder what Matt wants with me. Can you get up here? Well, I certainly can. Hey, boy, let's go pack. When you need someone to do a specific type of job, you hire someone specially trained to do that job. After all, this is an age of specialization. What you may not know is that right now, there are about several hundred thousand men and women who have received special training and are searching for employment. These folks, many of whom are veterans, have physical handicaps, which actually often makes them better able to fill specific jobs. 
They are all highly skilled because they have been taught to make best use of the physical and mental abilities they possess. Looking for help? Contact your state employment service and ask about physically handicapped workers. Employing the physically handicapped is good business. Last time I had occasion to visit the Lucky Penny, it was a ghost mine. So when I arrived, I was surprised to see smoke pouring from the smelter stacks and to hear unmistakable sounds of activity. I rode on to the ornate old house Matt Penrod had built for himself on the side of a hill, and he was waiting for me on a wide screened porch that overlooked the mine. Hello, hey, Good Matt. Well, I'm glad to see you. How are you, Matt? Look at her, Paladin. Just look out there, going like a house of fire. Come on over here and sit down, son. Well, Matt, that sure is a beautiful sight, all right. Yeah. So, you fooled the experts. You found the lost vein, huh? <laughs> Durndest thing. Tell me about it, Matt. Well, like you see, with me and this here doggone wheelchair, got so I couldn't climb around my diggings anymore. Had to give it up. Yep, I had to call it quits. Oh, not you, Matt. Yep. Then one day this fella come along, said he'd heard about the mine, wanted to know if he could look around. I had him sized up for a real dude, but I said, sure, go ahead. <laughs> well, Paladin, if he didn't go poking around in them shafts and locate that lost vein. Well, you always said it was there, Matt. Yep. Sure wish I was able to get a look at her. And you know something? Know what this fella's name is? Huh. Penny. Joe Penny. <laughs> Joe Penny? Yeah. <laughs> you see? Yeah. Lucky Penny. Yeah. Well, anyway, he come to me with a proposition to work the mine. He take over, we go shares. It's all right with me right now, because I'd just like to see her going. Yeah, I think I understand. Just one bad thing, though. You remember Charlie? Charlie Hodges? Sure. He's the superintendent who was with you for so long. Yep. Well, Charlie and this Joe just couldn't seem to hit it off. Couldn't work together. Wasn't anything I could do about it, Paladin. It just turned out that Charlie had to go. That seems a shame. Sure was. Sort of took the shine off the whole thing. But now there's something else. What's that? Our first shipment went out about three weeks ago, headed for the Mint. But we lost it. Lost it? Yeah. Between the mill and the railroad, to tell me. You mean, you mean it was held up, robbed? So they say. Have you called in the law? No, I don't want the law in on this. That's why I sent for you. It ain't so much I want to know who did it. I just have to know who didn't. And I want you to prove he didn't have nothing to do with it. Who? Charlie Hodges. Oh, Matt, surely you don't think that No, of course he... I don't. But then trying to tell me he did... Joe Penny, some of them others pointing the finger at him, and I ain't gonna have it. You get to work, Paladin. You prove Charlie didn't have nothing to do with it. I don't think that'll be very hard, Matt. Uh, will I have a chance to meet this uh, Penny? Uh, he ain't here now. Said he had to go east on a buying trip. Uh, I don't know. But you get to work. All right, Matt. <laughs> Look at that mine, Paladin. Going like a house of fire. It was late in the day when I left Matt's house. But I decided to swing around and have a look at the mine. 
that wasn't easy. A high wall completely surrounded the place. I followed the wall until I found a gate. A sign said, keep out, but I somehow couldn't believe it. The gate was open. So I started through. That's far enough. Can't you read? Yeah. It says, keep out. <laughs> that was your warning, mister. That shot was aimed over your head. If you show up here again, I'll send a bullet through you. I see. You understand? No, but I hope to. Very soon. Come on, boy. A fortress mine was an unusual thing in that part of the country, and I began to wonder just how much old Matt knew about his lucky penny operations. The hotel in town was musty from its years of disuse, but it was open for business, so I checked in and went up to my room. I tried to figure just where to start to prove that Charlie Hodges did not steal the lucky penny's gold shipment. Yes? Paladin? Yes? Uh, remember me? Charlie Hodges. Uh, I happened to be in town when he rode through today. I thought I recognized well, I'm you. I'm glad you did, Charlie. Come on, come oh, on in. Thank you. I saw Matt this afternoon. Oh, what'd you think? He looks old, tired, but he's happy. Yeah, yeah, he's happy. Maybe after all, that's what's important. Well, go on, sit down, Charlie. Oh, thank you. Say, Charlie, Matt wants me to check that robbery of his gold shipment. Oh? Uh, Charlie, he wants me to prove that you didn't do it. Well, that'll be easy. I didn't. <laughs> that convinces me. Do you have any idea who did, Charlie? Well, as near as I can figure, nobody. What do you mean? I don't see how anybody could steal the gold. Because I don't see how there could be any gold. Huh? Oh, the lucky pennies worked out. Oh, they're working the mine right now. Look look out the window. You can see the fire from the smokestacks. They must be on a 24-hour schedule. That's what's got me baffled. Paladin, I, I know the lucky penny like I know the inside of my hand. And I know a worked out mine when I see one. That vein didn't just default, it quit. Matt doesn't think so. I know. What about this Joe Penny? Well, we didn't get along right from the start, but funny thing, he saw to it that I never had a chance to check out that vein he discovered. But even helpless as he is, how could anyone fool an old miner like Matt? Well, Matt isn't the man he used to be, Paladin. You know, besides, a man believes what he wants to believe. Oh, uh, you're right. Say, did you ever meet this Joe Penny? No. <laughs> believe me, he's just a cheap crook. Do you know what he's up to? I think so. Investment swindle? Sure. He wants to make the lucky penny look like a going outfit so the suckers will want a piece of it. And he had to fake the holdup to explain away why there's nothing to show for all the activity. Huh? Exactly. The worst thing, when he collects his boodle, he's going to beat it and leave the old man helpless. Paladin, I don't want to see that happen. Well, we'd have to prove and prove they're faking the operation. The only way to do it is get inside. <laughs> I tried it and I didn't get very far. What can we do, Charlie? Well, you know, Paladin, I've been thinking about this, and there is a way. There's an old tunnel starts outside that wall. It's been sealed off from the main shaft, but uh, it won't take much of a charge to clear it. Well, why don't we give it a try? Go out there first thing in the morning. Sure, I'm willing. I'll have the dynamite with me. How long since this tunnel's been here? Oh, long time. Used to be the East Portal before we abandoned it. <laughs> I'll bet even Matt's forgotten about it. 
Yeah, uh, uh, hold it. Uh, now, here's where she's sealed off. Well, give me that dynamite stick. Uh, here. You got the caps? Uh-huh. When you find your spot, I'll fuse it. All right. Now, let's see. Uh, uh, well, about, about here will make her fall, right? All right. Uh, won't they hear the blast up there? Oh, not enough. You got her crimped yet? Yeah, I'm ready to go. All right, now get back a ways. Better get down on your belly. All right. It's a short fuse, Charlie. When you light it, move fast. Yeah. <coughs> well, there she is. Very pretty, Charlie. I used to be considered one of the best powder monkeys in the West. Glad to know I haven't lost my touch. Yeah. Come on, let's go. I was happy to remember that Charlie knew the lucky penny like the inside of his hand. It was all a bewildering maze to me, but somehow we eventually reached the main portal and we were able to look out on the yard where the mill and refinery were located. Uh, looks like we made a mistake when we figured to disguise ourselves in these miners' clothes. Oh, those men out there look more like Barbary Coast riffraff. I see such a bunch of plug uglies. <laughs> look, all those that ain't in the poker game have rifles over their shoulders. Hey, you smell that? Yeah. What is it? It's chlorine gas. They got that refinery running full blast. Is there any way we can get over there? Yeah, if we can make it past those rifles, we can duck behind the slag dump and get around the back way. Oh, come on. Uh, take off that miner's hat. It makes you conspicuous. Oh. All right, come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. We made it. Yeah. Wonder why they have no rifle guarding this spot. I guess he stepped over to take a hand in the poker game. Say, you know, Paladin, I'm confused. Why? Well, some of that slag we passed is hot, like it was fresh dumped. Well, that would mean they're going through the whole smelting process? Yeah, yeah. Well, they wouldn't have to do that just for, for show, would they? Well, I can't see why. Have you got your gun? Yeah. Uh -huh. We'll have to shoot our way out if we get caught, but... I want to try to get to that storage vault over there. Where's that? That iron shed, see? Oh. The heavy door on it? All right, come on. Yep. Hey, we're in luck. It isn't locked. Ooh, Charlie, look at that. What? Gold bars, real gold. Hey, Maxie, watch it! Uh oh, they've seen us. Do we shoot? No, 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 better to run. Follow me. bullets began to bounce all around us, and suddenly we had a whole army on our tail. I kept my eyes on Charlie's feet and ran around a slag dump, across the yard, and into the mine shaft, and then it was dark, and I followed the sound. We climbed up, slid down, twisted, turned. All right. We can stop now. Taking a while to find us here. I used a shortcut. You mean you actually know where we are? Yeah, number three shaft. 
There's some storage chambers here, powder magazine, tools, things like that. You suppose we could find a ladder? I think so. <laughs> Supply chamber's right down here. Say, Paladin, that was gold, wasn't it? It sure was. I'll be. That lantern should be here. You really know your way around this lucky penny, don't you? Yeah, I thought I knew all there was to know about her, but she kind of got me baffled now. Hey, here's one. Wait, I'll light it up. Need any help? No, no. There we are. That's cheerful. Say, Paladin. What? Look. This is general storage. Well, what do you know about that? Well, there must be tons and tons of that stuff piled up in here. Gold watch case, gold ring. Gold loving cup, gold chain. Gold spoon. Hey, look at this. Gold tooth. Oh. Hey, you know, Charlie, all of a sudden the operation of the Lucky Penny isn't quite so baffling. It is to me. <laughs> I sure have to hand it to Joe Penny. He had quite an idea. Well, if you get this, you tell me, will you? The way I see it, Joe is using the lucky penny to fence stolen gold. This must be sort of a clearinghouse for gold loot from petty thefts and robberies all over the country. Huh. Joe buys it cheap, runs it through the smelter, comes out legitimate. Nice, clean gold bars, acceptable to the mint. What do you know about that? You think that's it, huh? I'm sure of it. Pretty smart. Yeah, maybe not so smart. He got found out. Yeah, we found him out, but right now we're in this mine with a whole army of his riflemen after us. We may never have a chance to prove it. I don't want to prove it. Why not? Well, you know and I know that old Matt hasn't got many days to live. Can you imagine what it'd do to him if this story came out? Well, you're right, Charlie, but we can't let them keep this up. Yeah, let's just spoil their little game. Scare them off. Run them out. Paladin, the powder magazine's right over here. Load up with as much of the stuff as you can carry. We can start here with general storage. A stick of dynamite sealed the entrance to general storage, and then we retraced our steps through the mine, blasting shut every tunnel and chamber where the loot was stored. The noise echoed and re-echoed, and a whole hill began to shake. And when we reached the portal, we saw the riflemen in full retreat across the yard. Charlie tossed his last stick of dynamite after them. As to a man, they went over the high wall. That evening, I called on Matt Penrod. I merely assured him that I was convinced beyond any doubt that Charlie was innocent. And I, I sure think you, Paladin. Of course, I, I knew Charlie never done it, but I just had to prove it. I sure wish Charlie had considered coming back to the Lucky Penny. Uh, Matt, what about this Joe Penny? Oh, I had a note from Joe. That buying trip he went on, he ran into some sort of difficulty. He's going to be detained a long time. Two to five years, he said. Oh, I see. Well, I think Charlie would be happy to come back. Uh, be worth his while, the way things are popping at the mine. I guess I'm a silly old man, Paladin. But you don't know what it means to me to sit here on my porch like this... Hearing them sounds at the Lucky Penny, like this morning. Yeah, seems kind of quiet tonight, though. But this morning and all that blasting going on, yes, sir, e Bob, I could tell things was really a humming. That's right, man. Things were really humming. Oh, oh, 
Miss Wong. Yeah. Just finished cleaning your room, oh, Mr. Pilot. That's very nice. Oh, thank you. You had nice your breakfast in dining room this morning? Oh, yes, I did. Don't oh. tell anyone, but I had big steak. Big steak. Three eggs. Three eggs? Hash brown potatoes. Hash brown. And hot biscuits. Oh. Dripping butter. Oh, Ma, mm. you eat too much. You get pudgy fat. <laughs> no danger, Miss Wong. The only good meals I get are those here at the Carlton, and that isn't very often since I'm away most of the time, anyway. Yes, uh... Oh, uh, Mr. Pilot and Macy Wong found penny you leave on bureau dresser. Oh, yes, that's a special penny, Miss Wong. Oh? Came in the mail yesterday with some very sad news. A friend of mine passed away. Oh, so sorry. Yeah, yeah. wonderful old gentleman. Oh. He remembered me in his will. Oh, you inherited some money? Yes, that penny. Just one penny? That's all. Huh. But it's very special. A lucky penny. Oh, it's supposed to bring you much luck? Maybe. We'll see, Miss Wong. <laughs> yes, I... Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed in Hollywood by Frank Paris and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy and Virginia Gregg as Miss Wong. Tonight's story was specially written for Have Gun, Will Travel by Ann Dowd. Featured in the cast were Ralph Moody, Joseph Cranston, and Joseph Kearns. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when CBS Radio presents Have Gun, Will Travel. Yeah, Temple Watch Repairs. This is the place. May I help you, sir? Yes, can you do anything about, uh, about this here? What, uh, what is it? Well, it's a wind-up radio. The crank's there on the side, but the spring's broken or something. Try winding it up. All right. Never seen one of these before. A wind-up radio, huh? Let's take it to a radio repairman. I did, but he said to bring it to you. What do you do with it, anyway? Well, I carry it around with me. like to listen to Arthur Godfrey, Gary Moore, Art Linkletter, Bing Crosby, and Rosemary Clooney. They're all on CBS Radio each weekday. I know. I'm partial to them myself. But I'm afraid I can't help you with the radio. Why don't you get yourself one of those uh, little transistor jobs? Yeah, I guess I'll have to. Well, thanks anyway. Oh, do you have the time? Yes. No one got shot. A few people were close to getting blown up, though. That was Have Gun, Will Travel with Lucky Penny from May 29, 1960. A story about stolen gold suggesting that... Uh, Good fences don't always make good neighbors. Well, that was a pun worthy of Fred Allen, and he's waiting in the wings with some of his worst here on Skywave Audio Theater. Fred Allen and wife Portland Hoffa came out of vaudeville with its one-liners and cracked puns. Fred stuck to that formula throughout his long radio career, and although he was uh, more erudite than most of his fellow comedians, 
You'll also hear a note of concern about radio dropping shows as TV began coming on strong. In 1945, radio started a show called Queen for a Day, in which contestants would compete with stories about being down on their luck. An applause meter, at least in the television version, would determine the winner, who would then be crowned and showered with gifts. Well, Fred takes that concept and turns it upside down with Jack Benny in this broadcast from May 26, 1946. There's a strike. 
anything you don't understand, applaud. It's perfectly all right. That's what they do in Hollywood. People come in, just applaud and get warm and go home. The trains are running again, Portland. Yes, if the railroad strike lasted one more week, yeah. the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe would have been off the hip parade. Oh, that would have been terrible. Well, I, uh, I think I'll run along, Portland. I have to get my magnifying glass and worm a crab apple. Mama says Friday is your birthday. That's right. How old are you? Nobody knows, Portland. I was born before the Decker Company started, so there weren't any records in those days. Mama says last... Now, don't you laugh. Don't you smile. You're going to establish a precedent in here. I want to know about it. Mama says last year when the candles on your birthday cake melted down... Yeah? There was enough grease to wax the floor at Roseland. Oh, I... I'm not that old, Portland. Mama says if you were a piece of furniture, you'd be an antique. Yeah. <laughs> if I was an antique in radio, I'd be Duncan's other fight. <laughs> well... Well, that's life, I guess, Portland. Mama says life is like the Australian fig bird. The Australian fig bird? It lives on the seeds and figs. But there aren't any figs in Australia. The Australian fig bird dies at birth. And the Australian fig bird has nothing on our jokes, let me tell you. I think we'd better get along to Allen's Alley, Portland. What is your question tonight? Well, recently, a Mr. Ralph Slater, a specialist in mental suggestion, made a phonograph record that he guarantees will put any insomniac to sleep. And so our question is, do you have any trouble sleeping? And if you do, what are you doing about it? Shall we go? As the dollar dinner said when the glutton sat down... I'll be gone in a minute. Ah, it's so good to get back to Allen's Alley, Portland. It's as quiet as an eel coiling in a bucket of whipped cream. Say, I wonder, I wonder if the senator is in. Let's knock. Somebody, I see. Somebody knock. Yes, I... Claghorn's your name, Senator Claghorn, that is. Look, I know. Something tells me you don't remember me, son. Look, I remember I'm you. I'm from the South. The Bone and Possum Paradise. Now, look, Senator. The only plant life I have around my house is a Virginia creeper. Now, wait a minute. Every time I get chicken pox, they're southern frying. <laughs> Senator. You remember me now, son? No. Don't say no in my presence. Why not? And oh, that's North abbreviated. <laughs> Senator, what about this sleeping problem? Well, now, I say, uh, when I first went to the Senate, I had plenty of trouble sleeping. You, uh... After the roll was called, I'd put on my sail-sucker night shirt and yeah. my Lindsay Woolsey beret. Yeah? Yeah, I'd face the south, lean back, close my eyes... And go to sleep, huh? Until some Yankee pigeon plucker would get up, start flapping his lips, and break up my Morpheus filibuster. <laughs> filibuster, that is... Heard you the first time, Senator. Are you still uh, losing sleep, Senator? No, I've solved my problem, son. How? When I'm ready to sleep in the Senate, I sit back and croon myself my southern lullaby. What is your southern lullaby? Rockabye, small fry on the cotton tree top. When the southern wind blows, your cradle will rock. When the wind's from the north, I say, baby, you'll ball. For down will come cradle, tree, and you are. Well, very good, Senator. Well, 
Senator stopped just in time. I was dozing off myself. Now, I wonder how Titus Moody is doing. Howdy, bub. You're starting to sound like Dennis Day, Titus. you have any trouble sleeping? I only half sleep. Half sleep? I got short eyelids. <laughs> With short eyelids, you can't close your eyes, eh? Only when I frown. Oh, I see. Well, are you the only one awake on the farm? No. Daylight saving time has got everything in a swivet. The animals are bewildered? Yeah. My cow had insomnia. Your cow didn't sleep at all? The bags under her eyes were so big. I didn't know which end to milk. You were confused, eh? Yeah. First time I milked the wrong end and got two buckets full of homogenized tears. Well, have you cured the cow's insomnia? I got a book on hypnotizing. Good. I stood in front of the cow. Yeah. I stared right into her eyes. Uh-huh. I started waving with my hands. Uh-huh. I said, Alagazam, Alagazin. You ain't a cow, you're a hen. You're a hen. You're a hen. Well, was your hypnotism a success? Yeah. Today, that cow thinks she's a hen. Well, how do you know? Well, she's sitting on a nest. You mean? She's laying eggnogs. Oh, my... Let's try... Let's try this next door here. No. Oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. You are expecting maybe Hoagie Carbuncle. Tell me, Mrs. Ann, do you have trouble sleeping? Who could sleep? Every night with his dreaming, my husband Pierre is waking me up. He dreams, huh? Always he has different things. Dreams he's different things? How do you mean? One night Pierre is dreaming he is the lone stranger. Yeah. <laughs> All night long he is yelling, Hi-ho, Silver! Hi-ho, Silver, huh? Upstairs is living a Mr. Silver. Yeah. <laughs> Shoes. She's playing first base for Vera Cruz. Now, wait a minute, Paul. 
you exponent of the Hackney, tonight we are discussing the problem of sleep. My poem awaits your bidding. And what is your shut-eye sonata called? My recipe for slumber. How does it eat? If you cannot sleep at night and you don't know what to do, my recipe for slumber is just the thing for you. Don't waste time taking powders. Don't bother counting sheep. Don't dawdle in a hot bath hoping you will sleep. But don't give up drinking coffee. Don't send for any gland man. You can eat and drink all night, and still you'll meet the sandman. My recipe for slumber is older than the Sphinx. Just cut 20 tiddlies into halves, and you'll get 40 winks. Well, thank you. <laughs> for cover, we turn to eat the tomato Accompanied by Maestro Al Goodman and his I Haven't Got a Joke for Them This Week Philharmonic, the DeMarco sing Doing What Comes Naturally.
Who would be low enough to sneak into a tour to save 60 cents? There's the guy. Hey, you. Who, me? Jack Benny. Benny down. I'll give you the 60 cents. Wait a minute, Fred. Wait a minute. Put that money away. But, Jack, I've only seen half the tour. Well, Jack... <laughs> give him 30 cents. Here you are, guy. Thanks. Follow me, folks. Now, on your right is a water cooler. <laughs> For Fred, it was nice of you to pay that 30 cents. Oh, it was nothing. Nothing, he says. 30 cents. Jack, how can you be so cheap? All right, go ahead. Be like the other radio comedian. Tell some cheap jokes. Say I'm tighter than the skin on Sidney Greenstreet's hip. <laughs> I squeeze a nickel so hard the E pluribus laps over the unum. Tell him. Well, Jack, I didn't... Oh, start insulting me after I made a, st- a special trip up here just to say goodbye before I leave for Hollywood. Well, Jack, I... All of a sudden, I'm cheap. I won't even eat in the sun. My shadow might ask me for a bite. <laughs> Your shadow has teeth? <laughs> Jack, look. Jack, don't... Get excited. Look, if you're cheap, you're cheap. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Some people save asparagus ends. It's a hobby. My hobby is not spending. <laughs> well, Jack, if there ever was a time that you and I should not argue, this is the time. What do you mean, this is the time? Well, a lot of, haven't you heard, a lot of the radio programs that have been on for many years have been canceled. They'll not be back on the air next fall. Well, that's radio, Fred. It's dog eat dog. I always say only the fit survive. Oh, how true. By the way, you uh, you finished tonight, didn't you? <laughs> yes, sirree. Tonight was my last show of the season. Did your sponsor mention anything about your program coming uh, back in October? Well, no, no, Fred, but we have a mutual understanding. You see, we always sort of take it for granted. Oh. The season ends, the sponsor shakes hands with me... And then we... Yuck! <laughs> Jack! Jack, what's what's wrong? Tonight he didn't shake hands. <laughs> well, that's what happened to the street singer. <laughs> At the end of the year, his sponsor used to wink. One year he didn't wink, the street singer was back in the street. But Fred, why should my sponsor want to get rid of me? Well, I'm funnier than I was when I started, and I'm getting less money. Really? Some weeks when he's short, I take tobacco. <laughs> I hate well, to get that... these big laughs on your program. I... <laughs> Let's face it, Jack. Radio needs new blood. Who knows? We, we, we may be through. I've been on radio 14 years. They can't throw me aside like an old shoe. But, Jack... 14 years. And now, like an old shoe. But, Jack, you with that hmm and yipe. Fourteen years is a long time. <laughs> Fred, what has Mark Perkins got that I haven't got? Only longer commercials. <laughs> well, Jack, you know how it is in radio. Today you're a star. Tomorrow Ralph Edwards is hitting you in the face with a pie. <laughs> like an old shoe. Well, cheer up, Jack. At least we have our memories. We've known each other for 30 years. Yep. The first time I met you, Fred, I was just a kid in school. A diller, a dollar, a ten o'clock scholar. You were the only ten o'clock scholar I ever saw with five o'clock shadow. <laughs> How I could use some of that fuzz today. 
use a good joke today, too. <laughs> the next time we met, we were in Fordville, remember? You were doing a musical act. Playing the violin. What a finish I had. When I played Glowworm, my violin lit up. <laughs> With those neon strings, it was beautiful. Fred, remember my encore? Encore? Remember I'd put the violin bow in my teeth, bend the crab, and play Listen to the Mockingbird? And as you bent the crab, two mockingbirds flew out of the back of your pants. I stopped every show. <laughs> Except this one. Remember the closing... Remember the closing... This one stopped five minutes before I got on it. Remember, remember that week in Needles, Arizona, the closing act, Cohen's Camels... Cohen's... No, no, the I The closing don't. act. Jack, how could you forget Cohen's camel? Cohen, I remember. My sponsor told me to forget that other word. <laughs> ah, those were the happy days. The next time I saw you, you were just going into radio. Radio. I remember the morning Marconi called me up. <laughs> Marconi? Marconi and Singing Sam had a little radio station in a doorway down on the east side. The antenna was a Western Union boy holding a wire. Well, I guess the jokes don't fit. No, they don't. The antenna. When did I ever say antenna on my own? Go ahead, Fred. Well, it's all over, Jack. We've come to the end of the rainbow. Like an old shoe. Like there it is again. Been on ten minutes already. I've only had it's an old shoe. I forgot antenna. You ought to get a boot out of that old shoe by now. Sorry, I brought it back in again. Seems like only yesterday I ran into the May Company and said, Mary, stop demonstrating that Brillo. That's another word I don't know. It goes we're on top to of work. an antenna. A Brillo fits on an antenna. Cheer up, Jack. When, you re- when you're retired, you can tune in on my program. Your program? You mean you're not getting thrown out of radio, too? Well, why should I? Listen, if my program is old stuff, you with that broken-down Alan's Alley. Oh, well, wait, I mean my new show. New show? Uh, people don't want entertainment today. A radio show has to give away things. Nylons, iceboxes, automobiles. You mean to stay on the air, you have to give things away? Free? Yes. <laughs> I'll die first. <laughs> well, not me. I'm auditioning my new program tonight. And you're, Fred, you're giving things away? Tons of stuff. The strangers? What's the difference who gets it? Well, Fred, as long as I'm here in the studio... Well, no, I'm sorry, Jack. Professional... <laughs> Professional people cannot participate. It's a rule. But uh, don't you ever find people on these programs changing their names to, to get something for nothing? Well, occasionally we do catch a phony, but we're on the air. What can we do? Nothing. You, you have to give them the merchandise? That's right. Hmm... Now, Mr. Allen, we're ready for your audition. I'll run along, Fred. So long. So long, Jack. Hmm. Giving away things for nothing. Well, all right, Mr. Goodman. Let's try out my new show. How would you like to be king for a day? And here he is, the man who will change one of you nobodies into king for a day. The old kingmaker himself, Fred Allen. Did all you folks in the audience like those $1,000 bills you found on your seats when you came in? Good. And if you want more, there'll be a big bag of money at the door. 
On your way out, help yourselves. But the stage is loaded with hundreds of presents for the first man to answer our jumbo jackpot question. He will be king for a day. And here is our first eager contestant. Good evening, sir. What is your name? Abner Flog. Uh, Mr. Flog, how old are you? I'm 98. Ni- <laughs> 98 years old. And don't pin no orchid onto me. No, uh, no orchid, eh? That's how I lost my wife. On a quiz program? Yeah. My wife was 102. The fella pinned an orchid onto her. I see. The weight of the orchid bent my wife over and snapped her spine. Well, that's too bad. Yeah, my wife won first prize, but she never knew it. Well, all right, Mr. Flog. Now for our question. You may be king for a day. I don't think I'll last through the day. (laughs) All right, we'll hurry. Tell me, who was the sixth president of the United States? The sixth? There were three names. Mary Margaret McBride. Oh. I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Flog. But for making such a swell try, here is a gift certificate presented at LaGuardia Airfield, and you will get a brand new B-29 and a polka dot form-fitting parachute. Happy landing, Mr. Flog. Our next potential king for a day. Your name, sir? Myron Proudfoot. <laughs> Myron Proudfoot? You look like a chap I know. I'm not interested in your friend. Start giving things away, brother. <laughs> what is your occupation, Mr. Proudfoot? I'm a chaplain in a bakery. What does a chaplain do in a bakery? I put wings on angel cakes. <laughs> in the cake business, Mr. Proudfoot. Long enough to know a crumb when I see one. I see one. Now, don't get sarcastic, Mr. Proudleg. The name is Proudfoot, and make with the question. All right. Who is the sixth president of the United States? John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams is correct, and Mr. Myron Proudfoot is king for a day. Folks, here he is, King Proudfoot. Well, Your Majesty, how do you feel? Never mind how I feel. What do I get? Well, first... First, for His Majesty from Schnook Sport Nook, a genuine no-splash beaver board canoe paddle. A canoe paddle? Oh, boy! And with the compliments of Tiffany's, this chromium pitchfork. For me! A four-pronger, and it's all mine. And from Hemingway's hardware store, 200 pounds of self-hardening putty for King for a day. Just what I need. Just what I need. This is just the beginning, King. King, you are over 35. By two years. Fine. That's Jumbo Conan, Uncle Jim. For His Majesty. He is over. Epi, Epi, that's yipe, backwards. Here, the piston rod from a genuine Baldwin locomotive for His Majesty the King. Small <laughs> locomotive. And here, from Melody Lane Music Shop, this case of 2,000 soybean mandolin picks. These are the mandolins. I just keep pinching myself to believe it. Immediately after this program, Your Majesty will be guest of honor at a banquet at Hamburger Heaven. Tomorrow morning, through the courtesy of the sanitation department, you will be guest conductor on the 11-5 garbage run through the Bronx. At night, in your ermine robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken cleaning contest. I'm king for a day! And that's not all! 
right now to make you look like a king. Sam of Sam's Super Shoe Shine Stand is here to brush your shoes. All right, Sam. Sam, watch out for the button. Next, the president of the Busy Bee Hat Cleaners is here to block your hat. Take the king's hat, Mr. Bumble. And change the newspaper and the hat band. Your suit is a little baggy, King. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. Wait, wait. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a minute. by the use of this wish to blend. In fact, the iced tea season has played a big part in making tenderleaf tea so famous for flavor. Flavor means more. It's more important through the summer months. So everybody sets out to get all the flavor going and that leaves fake tenderleaf tea for finer flavor and more of In spite of melting ice, the richer goodness of tenderleaf tea persists. The last swallow of the glass is still delicious, still flavorful tenderleaf tea. This comes is NBC, the, the national broadcasting company. They called it King for a Day and put Jack Benny in there. And it was one of the most famous of the episodes involving Fred Allen and Jack Benny in their alleged long-running dispute. More than his longtime friend and comedic adversary, Jack Benny, Fred Allen satirized events of the day, and so some of the humor would require footnotes in our time. And like Benny, Fred Allen had a way with the well-timed ad lib, which sometimes made his show go long and get cut off at the end. And you heard one example there, which definitely had an exciting finale with the audience still going kind of crazy. And, of course, that famous line, you haven't seen the end of me. That was the Fred Allen Show with occasional guest Jack Benny from May 26, 1946. We're off to Cairo next with Rocky Jordan. And this is Skywave Audio Theater. Cairo was always a crossroads of East and West, a mix of cultures that sometimes got explosive and certainly led to intrigue. Much as Casablanca was for Rick Blaine in the 1944 Bogart Bergman film, you take the intrigue further east and leave the tortured love affair behind and you have the Café Tambourine and proprietor Rocky Jordan in the middle of dangerous doings each week, and this time Rocky is dead center in Desert Betrayal, a story from May 29th, 1949. Time now for Rocky Jordan. Not far from the Mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Café Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. The Café Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men. 
alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. Tonight's story, Desert Betrayal. There are five times in a day when a foreigner like myself tries to stay off the streets of Cairo. That's at dawn, noon, late afternoon, sunset, and just after dusk, when the Moazin appears in his minaret to call the faithful to prayer. At that moment, all activity stops, and the devout Moslem kneels on his rug facing Mecca. Keeping away from them at those times is one respect we can pay their religion, and they appreciate that respect. But I guess I wasn't watching the clock this particular evening. My cafe tambourine still held the intense heat of the day, so I got out and walked down the crowded Sharia Nagoon toward the Nile to try and catch a cool breeze. I just stopped to glance at a big poster, something about a rally for the politician El Marmot Bay, when I heard the voice of the Moazin in the minaret high above me. Suddenly, all sounds of activity stopped as the natives faced east, their foreheads to the ground. As quick as I could, I ducked back through a narrow passage off the street that led to the winding stairs of the minaret. I waited there until sounds from the street told me prayers were over and the Kyrenes were again about their business. Then I was about to be on my way when... The scream came from the minaret. As I turned and looked up, I saw the bearded Muezzin in his flowing robe stagger out of the tower, pitch headlong down the winding stairway. He rolled over and over, and he didn't stop till he sprawled at the bottom, almost at my feet. It was like something out of a bad opera. For a split second, I couldn't move. But the red splotches from stab wounds spreading across his white robe snapped me out of it, and I rushed over to him. All right, easy there. Try not to move. Who did this? You've got to tell me. Listen, who did it? I guess he figured he was done for, and there was a look almost of ecstasy on his kindly face. But I didn't want to give up that easy. I made a move to try and stop the bleeding when I heard heavy footsteps coming down the stairway. It was another figure in the robes of a muzin. Only he had a black field boots on. Come on, hurry up, will you? Help me with this man. Shut up and get back. We gotta work fast. He's sure Quiet, to die. I said and move. I'm not Must going I anywhere. Tell you again. Since when does him always and carry a luger? Don't touch him. You've stepped in where it doesn't concern you. Yeah, maybe it's lucky I did. Think again, my friend. It's your misfortune. I felt the blow of his heavy luger across my face, and that was all. Only a roaring like a calm scene on the desert, me spinning with the wind, till it seemed to pitch me back down to the foot of the minaret. The pain in my head drove me to my senses, and when I opened my eyes, it was pitch dark. The dead body of the kindly Muezzin lay beside me. Just as I realized I was clutching something tightly in my hand, a flashlight stabbed right in my eyes. So, it is you, Mr. Jordan. Get up at once. Well, good hunting, Greco. Who called you? There was no police call. Ali! Take the knife from this man. Knife? The one in your hand, Mr. Jordan. You need not feign surprise. You do not deceive me. Getting ideas already, Greco? Hand over the knife. Oh, take it. I don't use knives. Indeed. However, it was in your hands, stained with the blood of the sacred Muezzin lying dead by your side. Look, don't you know a plant when you see one? Enough. This time you have overstepped yourself, Mr. Jordan. Okay, arrest me. Get it over with. 
Perhaps that will not be necessary. I need only to call the people in from the street to witness this thing. What are you getting at? When the news spreads that their revered religious leader has met violent death by the hands of an unbeliever, you will be disposed of very quickly. You'd like that, wouldn't you? I would be helpless against the mob. You see, Mr. Better Dorgan, get some sense now, Greco. If the Moisen's death gets out, there'll be a lot of repercussions. You think Sabaya would put another stripe on your sleeve if that happened? My personal ambitions have nothing to do with this. Think it over. Uh, Mr. Jordan, uh, you will understand that I had no intention of disclosing this to anyone uh, as yet. Sure, Greco, sure. Uh, Ellie, bring another man. You will take the Moisen to the Minaret and hide his remains there. It will be done. Uh, one moment. Under no circumstances will you breathe a word of this to anyone. Is that clear? It is, Sergeant Greco. Quickly now. And you, Mr. Jordan, will come with me. Greco waited only long enough to watch his aides lift the Moesin and carry him carefully up the steep winding steps to the tower. As they disappeared into the dark, he gave me a shove and I walked ahead out into the street. Neither of us spoke a word on our ride to headquarters. I was taken to Sabaya's office and a couple of guards held me there for maybe half an hour until Sam made his appearance. Greco was with him and they motioned the guards outside. It was all just a little too deliberate. Uh, Greco been telling you things, Sam? Keep silent until spoken to, Mr. Jordan. Then let's get at it. Jordan, I have Greco's statement. You were found at the foot of the Mongol minaret beside the dead body of the muezzin. Did he tell you I'd been knocked out cold, Sam? A trick, Captain. He was trapped and could do nothing but pretend that he also had been attacked. Then explain the shape my face is in, Greco. Your face gets smashed up in many ways, One Mr. moment, Jordan. Greco. Now, Jordan, I will hear your full explanation of this affair. I was standing at the foot of the tower stairs during the last call to prayer. Did you, an American, not know better than to be there at such a time? I ducked in there to get off the street. Mm. Go on. And the Moisin rolled down the steps right at my feet. Before I could get anything out of him, somebody else in a Moisin's robe showed up. There is no other Moisin at the Minorat. You're right, Greco. He wasn't a Moisin. He wasn't an Egyptian. He had on German field boots and he carried a Luger. Jordan, what fantastic tale are you trying to make and me listen believe? Listen to me, Sam. The guy roughed me up against the wall and then slapped his gun across my face. He's lying, Captain. Ask Mr. Jordan how he got this knife in his hand. You can see for yourself. Put the knife on the desk, Greco. I, I do not wish to look at it again. As you wish. The Moesin had been stabbed four times. I thought it best under the circumstances to have his body hidden in the menorah. Yes, 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 yes. You acted most wisely, Greco. I was only doing my duty, Captain Sabaya. Uh, Jordan, about this man with the Luger... Would you recognize him if you saw him again? You bet I would. Uh, you, uh, you have told me everything? That's right. And you can explain nothing of the other similar acts of violence against our holy men here in Cairo? Well, there have been others. This is the third Muezzin to die in the past month, all by the knife. But why, Sam? What's it all about? I do not know, but I intend to find out. Jordan, there are things a man like you would not understand that my people take their religion most seriously. Quite often, our emotions become strongly involved. Well, maybe I do understand, Sam. Every man has a religion, whether he knows it or not. But there are differences. Sure. I've knocked around enough to learn to respect another man's beliefs. That's why I get off the street. We will not go over that again. Oh, okay, but you can't hold me, Sam. Indeed I can, Jordan. You will be committed to jail pending further investigation. So that's the way it is. That will be all. Greco, I must hurry to the El Mahmoud Bay political rally. We have promised him police protection. Put Jordan in a cell. This way, Mr. Jordan. Oh, Greco, you had best place him in the old cell block across the alley. And 
under heavy guard. I know better than to try and figure out what goes on in Sabaya's mind, but I had a hunch he was locking me up more than anything for my own protection. And the old cell block would be the last place a mob would try and hunt me out. Greco made a big thing of it as he and two others directed me down a corridor to the back door. A dim bulb over the entrance was all that lit the alley. Greco motioned across to a dingy sandstone building about 30 feet on down, and I moved ahead. I had taken not more than a dozen steps when it began to happen. A whole bunch of them came out of nowhere. Everyone hooded, surrounded Greco and his guards. Made quick work of it. Stop it at once. I come back you. One of the hooded men was out of the scuffle and had me by the arm. Get moving, Jordan. What is this? I will call it a rescue. Maybe I don't want it. Shut up, you fool. Now move. By that time, they were all around me, dragging me up the alley. Somewhere back, I could hear an alarm sounding and the shouts of more men running out of headquarters. But already, we had reached a side street where a light field truck was waiting, its motor running. The hooded figures piled me in, the driver put it in gear, wheels spun, and we were careening off down the narrow winding streets. Well, we must have traveled every side street in Cairo to shake the police. Finally, the truck roared across the Bulak Bridge of the Nile, through Giza, on west and north above the Nile Valley as it meets the desert. As the truck picked up speed, the men relaxed their grip on me, peering ahead to the onrushing road, so I had a chance to look them over. Well, the top man had called it to a rescue, but I knew better. Every one of them was wearing German field boots and carrying a Luger. The jump was a risk, but I knew there was nothing alongside but soft sand and was the only way. I waited till we hit a sharp, bumpy curve, and I was off and rolling. The fourth time over, I was on my feet, clawing my way through the brush. Then they opened up. I dived for a ditch with the wind knocked out of me, and I stayed there, my face in the sand, waiting for them to flush me out, knowing exactly what would happen when they did. You are listening to Desert Betrayal, tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. Travel to the ends of the earth tomorrow night with Dick Powell and Sidney Hasso, who will recreate their original screen roles on CBS Radio Theater. To the ends of the earth is the story of the expose of an international narcotics ring and makes for an exciting story. Remember Dick Powell and Sidney Hasso tomorrow, Monday night at 6. <laughs> Now we return you to Cairo and tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan, Desert Betrayal. It was a peaceful evening as I stood at the foot of the minaret and listened to the Moazins call to prayer. But all that was changed a few seconds later when the Moazin lay dying at my feet. A man wearing German field boots and a gun to match planted the killing on me. Not long after, as I was being taken to a jail cell, the same man with a lot of helpers broke it up, dumped me in a truck, and roared out into the desert. I remember jumping from the speeding truck, some gunshots, and not much more, till a breath of air hit me. And it wasn't air off the desert. It smelled of cheap gin, like my cafe tambourine after a hard night. It came from somebody bending over me. Get up, monsieur, before they find you. Oh. Where are they? Searching the brush and the other side of the sand dune. Up with you now. Yeah. Where, where, where are we going? To my hut. Only a little way. Allez, monsieur, allez! 
Somehow she got me to her hut and dropped me on a cot. The dive off the truck must have jolted me plenty because right then I passed out for a while. And the next thing I knew it was daylight and I was wide awake and choking for breath. She was sharing her cheap gin with me. <laughs> the gin, it helps, n'est-ce pas? Oh, do they sell stuff that bad? Oh, so I, it is champagne you wish. No, no, I'm sorry. I woke up too quick. Oh, it is nothing. Anyhow, you took a lot of chances, sister. I am Suzette. Perhaps another drink now? No, 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 no thanks. I should wish. Uh, any of those guys come around? No, monsieur. They went away. Uh, looks like you got a good hideout here. Oh, well, we all hide from something, n'est-ce pas? Yeah, me from too many things. You, um, you do not tell me who you are, monsieur. The name's Jordan. And an American who flees from many men with guns on the desert. Oh, I hopped off a truck. They were taking me someplace. But why? Your guess is as good as mine. Many trucks have been going into the desert. Yeah? Where to, Suzette? I do not know. But something is going on out there. You, you were captured, monsieur? Oh, rescued, they called it. <laughs> you make a strange riddle. Oh, yeah, it's a beauty. I'm always in a stab to death in Cairo. Not the first to be killed. But whoever did it figured I knew too much. Before the police could salt me away, this gang grabbed Monsieur, me. Monsieur, what were they like? Well, they weren't Muslims. They were men who speak good English and carry lugas. Oh, sacre nom. Well, you got it figured, Suzanne? Oh, always it is the same. So it was with the betrayal of France. Always I do not realize... What are you talking about? Monsieur, in France they call me a traitor. It was not so. I did not know I was being used by the enemy. It makes some sense, huh? Oh, now I am a poor French woman in Egypt without credentials. I must exist as best I can. When there is an opportunity to sell munitions and guns into Egypt, what can I do? The trucks are taking munitions into the desert? Oui, but I did not Who's know. Who's the deal with, Suzette? Uh, it is a bad deal. Uh, come on, never mind the gin. Uh, Who'd you sell the stuff to? Well, there... There is a man named Frank Kruller. Where do I find him? A, a houseboat on the Nile. The Habia 16. All right, let's, let's have some more. Oh, no, no, monsieur. Already I have said too much. You rest now. Uh, you will need much strength for what is ahead. So I waited out the burning heat of the day in her hut. All the time I tried to get more out of her about Kruller and the munitions going into the desert. How that tied in with the Moazin's death. But from then on, Suzette closed up tighter than the cap on a bottle of Coke. Well, with a little food and a lot of sleep, I was ready to go by sundown. Suzette helped me into Giza. From then on, I was on my own. I thumbed a ride across the bridge, but before I went down along the river, I decided on a phone call. Captain Sabaya speaking. Hello, Sam. Jordan, so it is you. I just didn't want you to worry about me. Where are you? What are you doing? Oh, relax. I'm all right, I tell you. You don't have to rescue me. Rescue you, indeed. You will return to headquarters at once. Sorry, I got a big date. Where are you going? To see a guy named Kruller. Kruller? Frank Kruller. Any objections, Sam? Jordan, listen to me. There are things you do not understand. Why not? You are not a Muslim, but I am. And I can tell you that you are in great danger. For your own protection, come back to jail. Uh, thanks for the advice. See you later, Sam. Jordan, for the last time... Then I was on my way to see Kruller. I couldn't have missed his Dahabia on the Nile if I'd tried. It was a floating palace, 
All lit up with music coming from someplace and real important looking people going on board. With a day's growth of beard and so on, I wasn't exactly in shape for a party, but I went anyhow. Only a big pile of muscles at the entrance stood in my way. Retrace your steps, friend. Don't get upset, Buster. I didn't come to see you. State your business here. Maybe I got invited. Only those of influence and wealth come here tonight. Uh Ah, something uh, real special, huh? A reception in honor of the great El Marmot Bay. I've known bigger politicians. Yeah, Back to the streets with you, English. Not till I see Frank Kruller. He's not here. Well, let's look around. Yeah, back now, no. stupid cop. No. What is going on here? Somebody was coming through the lighted doorway toward us. The one man I wanted to see more than anyone else. I'd last seen him under the minaret as he slapped a luger in my face. Who is this man? He's no one. I tell him to go away. I will handle him, Jerub. So it is you, Jordan. Yeah. I take it you're crueler. I am. You know, Jordan, you interest me. <laughs> I'll bet. You made good your escape last night. Is it not foolhardy to walk back into another trap? Not if it gets some answers. It so happens that I would like to talk to you, too. Come this way. No, no, let's talk here. Sorry. I fear you have no choice. A glance at the shadows told me there were others besides Jarub covering for Kruler. So I followed along with Jarub close behind. We went down some steps away from the party going on above, through a narrow corridor to a door that Kruler opened. He motioned me in. I was face to face with a guest of honor. One Napoleon-sized, puffy, gimlet-eyed Egyptian politician sporting a monocle. El Marmot Bey. Who is this man, Kruler? The person who persists in making trouble for us, El Mahmoud Bey. Ah, Jordan, of course. Excellent, excellent. You the top man in this deal, Mahmoud Bey? Perhaps more than you know. What audacious motive brings you here? A lot of question marks about guns and munitions you got your hands on. Stuff that's being hatched out in the desert somewhere. Most interesting. From whom did you learn this? Oh, skip it, Mahmoud. I'm not on your side yet. I had hardly hoped for that. What else you know, Jordan? Just that you're playing for something pretty big. Killing Muslim leaders is dangerous business. What are a few lives if they serve my purpose? You tell me. El Mahmoud Bey, your time is most valuable. The others are waiting. As you say, Cruella. The hour grows short. Jordan, finding the source of your information and how much of it you have divulged to others is most important to my cause. I'll bet it is. We have ways of getting it from you. With a luger? Wait, Curler. Jordan, who else knows you have come on this Dahabia? A lot of people. It is possible. Let him go, Curler. What happens to this man after he leaves here, you may decide. Of course. Jarub, bring the others. Throw this man out. At once, Aren't you up to it yourself, Kruller? No, no, not that way, Jarub. Out the window. Perhaps, Jordan, the waters of the Nile will drive you to your senses before it's too late. I got plenty of Nile water, all right, but I didn't head for the shore. I saw them moving along the bank waiting for me. 
Then a little boat took off downstream trying to pick me up. But they didn't know I was hanging onto the anchor chain. In a little while, I was pulling myself back into the little room. It was empty now. The noise of the party upstairs covered for me, and I started looking around. A couple of shoves, and I had the closet door open. What was inside didn't surprise me. A stack of small arms, Lugers, manlicker rifles, and cases of ammunition. Next, I tried the desk in the corner. The minute I cracked the top drawer, I had what I wanted. It was a list of various Muezzins in Cairo. The top three names were scratched out, and I figured they were the ones who had already died. Maybe the rest were next. But it didn't say why. I folded the sheet and shoved it in my pocket. Suddenly, there was a soft step from behind. Before I could move, there was a silken cord around my neck, drawn tighter and tighter, and once more, thick blackness poured in. I was slow in coming out of it. First, I thought I was still lying at the minaret beside the dead Moisin. Then I was in a ditch with a gin-soaked woman bending over me. Finally, I opened my eyes. The light from a window almost blinded me. Outside, I could see other buildings, and I knew we were in some abandoned army camp. I tried to move, and I realized I was tied securely to a chair. The bare room held just me and Frank Kruller. I salute you, Jordan. For a chance adversary, you have proved quite formidable. Ah, uh, skip the build-up, Kruller. Where are we? To the south is the Guattara Depression. It was used as an anchor in the battle for Egypt. Only you're using the place for something else. As a temporary hideout, it serves our purpose. Any munitions dumped, too? Spare your strength, Jordan. You'll need it. <laughs> like for what? El Mahmoud Bay, Mr. Jordan awaits you. Well, Jordan... For a man with big plans, Marmont... You give me lots of attention. Why? Because I wish to know what people are in possession of certain information. Who are they? I'll give you an answer. But to my question, not yours. Because I soon will become master of Egypt. Yeah. Mm. It will be done. El Mahmoud, is it wise? Let him know. There are but three of us, Kruller. He has no means of escape but the eternal sand. Thanks, my man. I know about the munitions and guns. Now, where's your army? <laughs> you Americans are indeed naive. Superior intelligence is more powerful than armies. Your brains and who else? At this moment, my loyal followers are at strategic points in Cairo and elsewhere in Egypt, awaiting the hour. You think that's all it takes? Clive took India with only 123 men, Mr. Jordan. I had it right, didn't I? You start out killing a few Muezzins, one by one. Nothing upsets a Muslim quicker than an offensive toward his leaders. And now more of the Muezzins are to die. When the people see their government is unable to cope with the atrocities, they will rise up and overthrow it. You get it all figured out, haven't you? Already there have been incidents. Soon the anger of the populace will move it to frenzy. There will be uprisings growing in violence. And that's when you step in. Yes. At that moment, the great El Marmad Bey will appear as their liberator. Yeah. The only trouble is it won't work. Indeed. Again, the mind of the West finds the mind of the East an insoluble riddle. Well, don't get me wrong, Marmet. You might use the religion of your people to get into power. Only you've forgotten one thing. Yes. What is that? Your people will still have their religion. How long do you think they'll be fooled? We Americans have a saying for that, if you're interested. I am not. 
secure Indra as Jordan is in your own welfare. Well, think about it. When the people find out they've been duped, what do you think happens to you? At that time, my power over them will be assured. Egypt will enter an era greater than the pharaohs ever knew. Ah, hold it, Mohammed. Back that idea up with some more figures. Give me one example of a tyranny founded on religious oppression that has ever lasted. Mr. Jordan, the fact of the moment is that you will die. Tell us what we wish to know, and death will be swift and painless. And if I don't? Death in the desert is very slow. No man has ever withstood the heat or the sun in his eyes. Need I say more? I get the general idea. What is your answer, Jordan? I told you, it won't work. Mm -hmm. Very well. Gruller, take him outside. I suggest that you turn your attention to me, El Marmad Bey. At first, I didn't recognize him without his uniform. But it wasn't a mirage. It was Captain Sam Sabaya. Kruller grabbed his Luger from the table as Sam kept walking right on in. How did you get here? That's important, Kruller. Watch that Luger, Sam. I'm tied here. I can't help you. That will not be necessary, Jordan. So, Captain Sabaya, the desert must claim another victim. That we shall soon see, El Marmad Bey. But you had no way of knowing. Not everything. But certain things have come to my attention. When Jordan phoned me he was going to Kruller's Dahabia, I followed along. And I've been following ever since. You think your authority amounts to anything here? My authority and my uniform remain in Cairo. I come here only as a Muslim to write a grievous offense to my religion. You come to this forsaken place alone without even the proof? You can find proof, Sam. Look in the other buildings. They're loaded with arms. Search Kruger's houseboat. In good time, Jordan. Enough of this. Kruger, dispose of this man at once. A very great pleasure. <laughs> Cruller aimed, and then it happened quicker than I could follow. Sam's foot came up a second before the shot, and the gun clattered across the room. Cruller dived in. Sam crouched like a panther, and then slammed Cruller over his head into the arms of El Marmot Bay, and they went down. I'd always thought Sam was pudgy and slow-moving, but he gave me the show of my life. He used every trick on those two guys that I'd ever known, and a lot more. The second time Marmot came up, his stomach got mixed up with a left, and he was finished. But Cruller tried for more. All the time, I couldn't move. Kruller went to work with his heavy boots, and that's where he made another big mistake. Sam flipped him into a corner, where he piled up like a stack of ten pins. Then suddenly it was all over. Hey, I could book you for a main event, Sam. Jordan, you will make no joke about this. Such, such tactics are, are most distasteful to me. Okay. How about getting me loose here, huh? Well, you will, you will tell no one of, of this incident. Sure, sure, just untie me. You know, Jordan, there are many things that you do not comprehend. Sam, get me out of here. Well, Sam finally untied me. We got El Marmot Bay and Cruller back into Cairo, and from then on, Sam was his old official self. It didn't take him long to round up all the Bay's loyal followers, and I don't have to tell you what happened to them after that. I, uh... I was going to send Suzette a case of good gin, but she'd done a fade-out, and nobody tried very hard to find her. Me? Oh, I've learned a few things. Sam Sabai has given me jiu-jitsu lessons.
It's CBS, again at this same time, next week, for another story of adventure and intrigue. When we take you back to Cairo and the Café Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. Jack Moyles plays the title role with tonight's script by Larry Roman and Gomer Cool from a story by E. Jack Newman. Rocky Jordan is produced and directed by Cliff Howell with original music by Richard Arant. Larry Thor speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. For a short time there, the usually adversarial Sam Zabaya was on Rocky's side in a situation that became more and more complicated. There were Germans in there, there was a French woman, some gin in there too, and a very corrupt politician. In Desert Betrayal, that was Rocky Jordan from May 29, 1949. Our next destination, Destination Freedom. It's next here on Skywave Audio Theater. It seemed like an unlikely name for a boxer, Henry Melody Jackson Jr. He was one of the few boxers to win three or more different division titles, featherweight, lightweight, and welterweight. The St. Louis High School honor student defended his welterweight title a total of 19 times. He took the surname Armstrong as his fighting name. Jackson, who stood just a little under five foot six, fought to 151 wins and 21 losses. His biggest fight was probably outside the ring, though, as we'll hear it in Richard Durham's story, The Saga of Melody Jackson. This is Destination Freedom for May 29, 1949. Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom. Dramatizations of the great democratic traditions of the Negro people is brought to you by station WMAQ as a part of the pageant of history and of America's own destination freedom. Research into ring history reveals no more fabulous story of the squared circle than the true life account of the prize fighter Henry Armstrong, the only fighter in history to hold three world titles at one time. In a chapter entitled, The Saga of Melody Jackson, Destination Freedom tells for the first time over radio the story of the triple title holder. Say, say, what about this guy you hear a whistling and punching that bag? What about this guy, huh? Suppose you was this guy. Would you do what he did? Suppose they called you the human dynamo, the buzzsaw, perpetual motion. Suppose you were built like he's built, solid like a brick. Only your eyes. The doctor said another punch in them eyes and you're blind as a mole. Suppose they told you that, huh? Would you do what he's doing? Getting ready to go back in the ring and fight again? Now that's the question I want to ask you. So just suppose you were him. Suppose you'd lived in St. Louis since three on Franklin Street, had gotten out of high school with a scholarship in your hip pocket. 
And on your way home, stop by a gym to watch some pugs skip rope and rip the bags. While a woman on a fine brown frame patted her feet to keep time. And nodded her head when you came up. Hi, honey boy. Hi, Mamie. Say, who are you trailing now? Some refugees from Alabama. They want to fight heavy. I still need you, featherweight. I ain't cut off a prize fight. Want to be a surgeon? That's right. And when your prize fighters get their eyes all cut up, send them to me. Doc Jackson will fix them up. I don't need no woman to teach me how to fight. Uh, well, a man taught me, and I didn't complain. You go on home, and when you want to make a living, my gym will be open. All right, pep it up there, you guys. Pep it up. And suppose you'd grin, and you'd walk confident down Kinsey Street past Dr. Venter's house with a pavilion and fine bay windows. And you walked down till you hit Franklin Street, crossed the railroad tracks, reached a shack with painless windows that stared out like empty eye sockets. You were home. That you, son? Uh-huh. You always stand there looking. Come in. Come on in for it starts to rain. Well, well, tell us. Say something. Did you get it? Yeah, did you get it? Yeah, yeah, I got it. The dean, the dean said go over to Washington University tomorrow and register. And a full scholarship. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, Grandma, two other kids want them too. It ain't nothing. Oh, God. Now, now, now. Go on away. Don't be a teasing, Henry. Let him alone. You are left alone. And that night when the gunny sack curtain was drawn and split the one-room house into two parts, boys sleeping on the east side, girls sleeping on the west, you slept near the door on a pallet beside Grandma. And when everybody was quiet, she said, Son? Uh, yeah, Grandma? I reckon Pearl would like for you to be a doctor, all right. Pearl was your mother. She left the world when you came into it. The preaching grandsons, what I've always wanted. Grandma, I, I want to be a doctor so I can be like Dr. Venter. Huh? I just want a house, a good house. With windows in the sockets, with windows crystal clear, with the sunshine pouring all down in it, all over me. Suppose the next morning you woke up whistling, you got on over to Washington University, tiptoed down the marble hallways, peeked inside the surgery classes, and while your fingers pretended they held a scalpel, the registrar's secretary called you. This way, please. The registrar will see you. You walked into the registrar's office and saw sunshine streaming through the windows, splashing over the desk. And you took out your scholarship certificate and he blinked. You... You are Jackson? Well, the principal of Vashon High said I came out second in the contest for the medical scholarship here. Well, he should and know the... better than to send Negro students here. But, well, he said... So Miss Benson, to... get Vashon High on the phone. Yes, sir. Of all the nerve. We don't take Jews, Negroes, Mexicans. They know that. Well, as for you, boy, I guess it's not your fault. You won the contest. No. That stupid principal never should have allowed you to enter the contest in the first place. We're sorry, but we couldn't possibly admit you. Just an unfortunate mistake, that's all. Just a mistake. <laughs> And 
And back home, Grandma could read your mind. The Lord ain't got no color line, son. Ain't no quota for his gospel preachers. And when your old man came home tired from the packing house that night, he advised without delay. Tomorrow morning, put in your application over the stockyard. They'll let you work until that day comes. Last hard first fire. That day was the inevitable layoff day. Them hands is delicate, but you should be strong. Pearl didn't monopolize all of you. Do my kind of work. Make a different kind of man out of you. And the A.M. hit the stockyard. You hit the stockyards that A.M. and 300 other A.M.s. You turned your fury against the stock and ran up a record in the slaughterhouse and the sheep kill, pig kill. You swung hammers over the steers, butchered, scrubbed, cleaned, shoveled, as days melted away like minutes. And then that day came. And you picked up jobs in bowling alleys and steel mills, levee camps, iron foundries. Got on as a spike driver in a section gang on a railroad crossing. Wielding a sledgehammer as if it were a golf club. Outside, your body was growing tougher and stronger. While inside, you dreamed the same dreams. You watched the train glide by. Stared for a brief instant eye to eye with strangers lounging in a club car. Saw one of them let a newspaper flutter out of the window. And as the foreman called for the hammers to swing again... Driver in. All right, get going there. You're holding us up, kid. Holding us up. Just looking at this picture here. Uh Uh-oh. Kid Chocolate done it. Huh? That's Kid Chocolate's picture. Hey, hey, gang, lay off, lay off. Hey, hey, come here, come here, look here. You just got a wire from New York. Kid Chocolate of Cuba just won the championship by knocking out Al Singer. Got $75,000 for his labor. And it says right here in the reliable times that the new champ's gonna take all them cabbage leaves back home to his native Cuba. I see what you mean, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. And he's gonna buy one of them sugar cane plantations and just sit back under one of them blessed palm trees and let pure grade A fresh air. Uh, none of that secondhand stuff. I yeah, hear you talking, boy. I yeah, hear you gonna talking. let it bathe every section of his beautiful body. <laughs> and hereafter, he will not hit a lick, even at a snake. Unless, of course, it bites him. <laughs> hey, hey, what are you guys standing around dreaming about? Huh? Drive them spikes and get the word. And you raised your hammer to drive the spikes in again. But you heard a drumming in your head of a boxing bag. And you saw the house with bay windows and sunlight streaming in. And suddenly you stopped and looked at your hands, your torso, your biceps. You made your way to Mamie's gym. Began drubbing the bag to the pad of her feet. You got the body, honey boy. You do what I tell you, you'll learn how to handle it. Yeah? You... You sure I can be good? I only take on those I think got the master touch. Huh? I don't fool with squares. That's enough. Now listen, honey boy. Huh? What I want you to do is stay on the bag. Uh-huh. Get your timing straight. Huh? Then I'll try you out on a few of the slick featherweights around St. Louis. What then? Skip one rope at a time, honey. I'll <laughs> tell you when to jump again. Back on the bag. Huh? You work the bags. Mamie showed you how to look into a man's eyes, tell what part of his body was going to try to throw at you next. She erased your weak punches, searched for a name to give you. And one day she said, You know, every time I come in the gym, you're just a punching and a whistling. I ought to name you Melody. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Melody Jackson. All right, Melody, the slickers are ready. You took on the St. Louis featherweights, and all the ref could do was open his mouth and tell about it. the St. Louis boys with your spike driver's hook and came out of the gym one day and Mamie had a new rope to skip. Hey, what's the car for, Mamie? You and me, honey. Get in. Well, well, where are we going? I told your grandma and old man you were leaving for Pittsburgh today. They didn't huh? leave. Pittsburgh? Yeah, you're the next feather champ. They don't allow no interracial bouts in St. Louis, so we're going where they do. Get in. My foot's pressing the gas. You rode over the highways toward the steel city, searching for that house with sunshine coming in through the windows. You went looking round Pittsburgh, begging for fights until you almost had to beg for bread. You got hungry. You were ready for any deal. You got in the ring with a veteran southpaw. You were pig meat for the veteran. And when the bell gave him permission, he ripped you to bits with jabs, uppercuts, hooks, crosses, slashed at your empty stomach with body blows, beat you to the canvas again and again until you heard Mamie cry out from the corner. Stay down, Finn! Stay down, honey! Stay down! But you kept getting up until your blood blinded you and you were beaten down. And when your mind went blank, your body obeyed the command. And suppose you had asked to go home and rode back towards St. Louis, bandaged, bruised, burning, aching, hardly hearing Mamie talking. I keep telling you, one loss don't mean nothing. You're championship caliber. Let's head west, to California, where there's no winners to worry about, where this Ares Mindy, the feather champ, hides out. Take me to St. Louis, trainer. I'm through fighting. You ain't started, honey boy. You got cut up, but you got delicate skin. You're only four. You should have been born a woman. But it'll toughen. I'm talking to you. California. The sign says St. Louis is just up ahead. You limp back to St. Louis, leave Mamie sitting in the car, walk back like a convict who'd escaped but didn't make good. Your grandma's waiting at the door. She just lifts your hands. Your bone's been broken. They'll heal. If you can't be a surgeon, preach the gospel. Come on in. You look at the tired old shack with the empty eye sockets where your dream of being a surgeon was born. And you look about the town where it was killed. And you think of the Cuban kid who'd gotten gold enough to buy crystal clear windows with sun coming through them. And you step back in the shack and say, I'm not coming in, Grandma. I'm going away. Where? You ain't gonna be no surgeon with hands like that. The surgery I'm going to do, my hands will handle it, I think. Goodbye, Grandma. You turned back, and you went back up Franklin Street and around the corner, and you saw her. Get in, honey. One look, and I knew you'd come back ready for the kill. 
Them scars will heal on your face and hands. Them inside won't. Get in, kid. You got in. And it took 20 hungry days before you reached California. Petty luck got you in on small clubs. While you stalked the West Coast featherweights, Mamie figured out the angles. You kept rubbing that bag for time and... It's just like in Pittsburgh, only worse. The champ won't come near you. And to make things worse, all these clubs out here have their bouts on the same night. We can't make but one fight a week. <coughs> just, just one a week, huh? Yeah. Listen, honey. Hereafter, you use my name. You'll be Henry Armstrong instead of Melody Jackson. They haven't gotten scared of Armstrong yet. Sure, sure. See, I was thinking. Yeah? There are five clubs out here, all having fights on the same night. Now, these ads here show the Rainbow Club's bout starts at 7 p.m. Uh-huh. The Garden starts at 7.30 p.m. The Arcade Arena starts bouts at 8 p.m. The Gilmore at 9. And the main events at Shamrock Stadium don't go on until 9.30. Uh-huh. Now, suppose you book me to fight featherweights next Friday at each stadium. You've been drinking, honey. Look, if I knocked them all out and had a cab waiting outside each club, I could make them all. We could make enough money to pay expenses. And besides, so many people hear about it, the champ would have to fight us. Only one little thing you're overlooking. Yeah? We'd have to put up every dollar we could borrow as guarantee on a deal like that. And if just one guy, just one of those five guys stopped you, you'd be washed up. Maybe. If just one guy stopped you. Let one try. Set him up, baby. You went back to your timing on the bag while Mamie went out and set up the fights. Five fights and five clubs for Friday night, between the hours 7 and 9.30. A rendezvous with the best featherweights in the West. And when it was set, Mamie's fingers dug into your biceps and she whispered, All right, honey. Be careful. And suppose you stepped over the ropes at the rainbow at 7.10 p.m. on the head. You saw Slugger George weave before you, and you worked your way on top of him and threw thunder at him. And you stood impatient while the referee held up your hands and said, The winner by a knockout in two minutes and ten seconds of the first round, Henry Armstrong! You slipped on your robe, grabbed a cab, got over to the gardens at 7.36 p.m., climbed into the ring, and Fanello Anzio was waiting. You caught him coming in with two terrible left hooks that spun him around like a top. You shot a right cross to the stomach that traveled six inches and sent Anzio down like he'd been shot with a rifle. You kept dancing to keep warm while the referee shouted, The winner! You whipped on over to the arcade arena across the street. At 8.15 p.m., Bella Anthony had ducked into your left uppercut, and you straightened him up like a soldier on drill, and he toppled out of the ring. The winner, in the and you got over to the Gilmore Stadium with half the fight fans in town now following you, and you pulled yourself through the ropes and whirled into Jeffrey Kane. You found him rugged and tough and standing toe-to-toe with you round after round, ripping at your skin until blood washed your face, and you sucked in a deep breath and threw all the power of your shoulder behind a hook 
that nearly tore his head from his body. He went to his corner, sat down on a stool, and he called it a night. Suppose you rode up to the gates of Shamrock Stadium and with bandages over your cut eyes and cheek and the curious crowds crying to get inside. Fatigue jabbed at your body for the first time and you called up all your strength for number five. Weaved your body across the ring like a cobra. Missed him when he ducked but slammed six machine gun lefts to his head when he didn't. because the crowd was yelling for it and they didn't stop until next month you and baby Aras Mendy came face to face in the squared circle and ten rounds later the ref cried the winner by decision Henry Armstrong and somehow on the whirlwind drive you had gained something and lost something had gained an exotic thrill from the ecstasy of a crowd. Lost your destination. Managers and backers were now fighting over your contracts like hawks over a calf's heart. And you didn't bother to look around when somebody came into the gym and said, A friend of mine and I would like to buy your contract, champ. Yeah? <laughs> they all want to buy it. We could do you a lot of good. Like what? Like getting a title fight that'd be recognized. Too bad New York won't recognize you for whipping Arizmendi. Yeah. If my friend and I take over your contract, we'll get the best manager in the country to handle you. Big Eddie Mead. Jumbo Mead. Shrewdest manager in the game. Hey. Who are you and this friend of yours? My name's George Rath. My partner's Al Jolson. Okay? It was okay. They sent over the new manager, Mead. <laughs> he came in when the gym was going at top speed. <laughs> Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you, Armstrong. Uh, who's the woman? My trainer. Any objections, big boy? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see who wins in the end. Now, I got a proposition, Armstrong. Proposition? Oh. Hey, cut out that noise back there, you guys. Say, say. Huh? Let them keep all the racket they want. I gotta have some noise. I don't trust no quiet situation. Yeah. That's better. I gotta have noise. I need it. Hey, Max. Yeah? Max, my secretary. Take a thousand and play noisy boy in the fifth at Santa Anita, will you? Yeah. Yeah. Noise and horses, my weaknesses. <laughs> now, this, this proposition I got. Joe Lewis is the big name in boxing nowadays. He steals the show. Nobody pays any attention to the little fighter. So? So unless a fighter in the lighter divisions can do something stupendous, gigantic, he can't get nowhere. Now, if you can win the featherweight title... Get me the match. And it's mine. And the lightweight crown and the welterweight crown. One man do that? One man in a million can. Armstrong, maybe. Scoop the field. Run up and down the boxing scale like a pianist over a keyboard. I don't like it. I like it. Good man. Good man. Uh, hey, Mac. Yeah. Mac, put me 500 on good man Lee in the fifth at Pimlico. Okay. Hey, and hey, you guys back there, make some noise, huh? 
sure you make me nervous with that tombstone attitude. Noise, eh? Now, what are you thinking? Look, Jumbo. The featherweight, lightweight, welterweight divisions are the toughest in the game. If Henry tries to dominate him, he'll wear himself out. Yeah, you're the toughest, all right. And the heavyweights, you got the lumber and bull. And the welterweight, lightweight, featherweight ranks, you get the tiger shorts. The fast little ones who can dart in and out, cut your body up the ribbons. <laughs> the guy who rules the tiger shorts got to be the best boxer in the world. Got to be the best. You're being baited like a fish. I know it. But I'll bite, baby. <laughs> All right. All right, let's work it out. All right. Let's go on the march. You take special pains with your training, Henry. Get so you can knock an overambitious boy out in any round you call. Then you go barnstorming around the country. Try for, let's say, 37 knockouts in 38 fights. That way you'll wake up the world. <laughs> Meanwhile, Big Eddie Mead will be angling for the bouts with the champs. We'll try and schedule a bout in the gardens with the New York feather champ, Petey Saren. Say for about October of this year of our Lord, 19, 3, and 7. You take him like Grant took Richmond. The winner and new featherweight champion of the world, Henry Armstrong. <laughs> then go around the continent, fighting welterweight. Yeah, jump to the welter. Run up a string of KOs in that class and I'll arrange for a bout with Barney Ross. See you around May, 19, 3, and 8. Gear yourself up for that one. Barney's a bad actor, one of the real sharks. But if you take him on schedule, you'll have that precious welter title. The winner and new welterweight champion of the world, Henry Armstrong! <laughs> then I'll be angling around for a match with the lightweight king. While you tune up, you keep driving. That whirlwind drive that makes them call your perpetual motion. And even though this Amber's ducks us, I'll have him forced into a match with you. Say around August of 38. I'll be right in your corner. So all you gotta do is take Amber's on schedule. And good Lord Almighty, three crowns will be on your head. Take him. This round, take him. I'll try. I'll try. Honey boy, don't kill yourself. Don't. Uh, and suppose it all came about according to schedule, and you threw yourself into the 12 rounds with the canny ambers and found them whipping back at you with stinging lefts and rights and slashed your cheekbones wide open. Once again, your face was washed in blood, but you kept boring in, beating them back round after round. And went back to your corner at the end of the 11th. Cut, split, bleeding in a dozen places, eyes bulged. Why, so bad, even Big Eddie's face was red and worried, and Mamie's hand shook when she put collodium and tincture of iodine to your split lips. You looked at referee Donovan, afraid he'd stop the fight before the title was in your hands, and... 
You leaped out for the last round, and when he tore at your split lips again, you threw punches at him like a human windmill. You pinned him against the rope, slammed home rights, left, rights, left, rights, left, rights, left, until you were moving automatically, and you never knew the fight was over, until you felt someone tugging at your hands and saying, The winner and new lightweight champion, the only man in history to hold three world titles at one time. And suppose you stood up there lonely for a while and realized ten years had passed you by. Grandma's been dead and buried a long time. Fighting, it's your occupation, like surgery to surgeons. Big Eddie Mead, he's dead. And slowly, almost so slowly, you hardly notice it. You begin losing. You toss off your featherweight crown, you can't make the weight anymore. A crafty scotch fighter takes away your lightweight crown. The winner and new lightweight champion, Amiangat. And the welter crown, that's the hardest of all to lose. They had to blast your eyes apart to get it off, to open old scars. And you went swinging down to the canvas, and the ref looked at your scars and stopped the fight. The winner by the technical knockout in the 12th round, and the new welterweight champion, Fitzy Isibet. And suppose it went on like that with the minnows and sardines snapping at the sick and weakening tiger shark, and your eyelids were cut open, sewed back, cut open, sewed back, and after a doctor told you, this is the last operation we can perform on those eyes. If you keep out of the ring, they'll hold up, I'm sure. If you go back fighting again, I can't vouch for you coming through with enough sight to see. It's up to you. You heard what they said, honey. I heard. Then what are you doing back in the gym? All the money's gone. Dead in a thousand ways. <laughs> it goes when you're on top. And you forget why you went that way in the first place. Honey. I know what I'm doing. I can make it again. No fighter ever makes the comeback. You know that. All I know is that I set out to get a house with crystal clear windows in it. Sunshine pouring through. Eyesight's no good without that. Come on, step away from the bag, Mamie. I'm going to go through the sharks again. Would you have tried it? Well, he did. He kept on his leather weapons and again waited for the ranks of the lightweights and the welterweights. He won 40 out of 49 fights. He made one of the rare comebacks in the boxing game. He remembered the bleak life in St. Louis the grandma who wanted him to preach, and the blind eye sockets of the windows without panes. He shielded his precious eyes from the blows of the sharpshooters, and then he quietly eased out of the limelight. But he bought a little house with the sunshine pouring all down through the crystal clear windows. You have
have just heard Destination Freedom's dramatization of the saga of Melody Jackson, the story of a triple title holder, Henry Armstrong. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham and produced under the direction of Homer Heck. The role of Henry Armstrong was played by Fred Pinkard. Others were Louise Pruitt, Dorothy Tate, Oscar Brown Jr., Fred Smith, and Studs Terkel. The special music was composed by Emil Soderstrom and played by Elwin Owen and Otto Christofek. This is Charles Chan inviting you to be with us again next week when Destination Freedom presents the story of Chicago's alderman, Archibald Carey. Your narrator sounded uh, maybe a little happy about all that getting punched up in the ring. And that narrator was none other than the Chicago writer and celebrity Studs Terkel, a charming man in his sunset years when I encountered him. After retiring from boxing in 1946, Armstrong ran a Harlem nightclub, the Melody Room, for a short time. Then he went back to St. Louis, where he retired. He became an ordained Baptist minister and a youth advocate, and he helped to run a boys' club. He also taught young up-and-coming fighters. And in 1966, Reverend Armstrong appeared on the TV game show, I've Got a Secret. And speaking of secrets, Cloak and Dagger is next. This is Skywave Audio Theater. I mentioned Casablanca earlier, and lo and behold, we're on our way there. Our story, based on a true event from World War II espionage, has to do with love and betrayal. Betrayal for a cause. And as with the Bogart and Bergman film, our backstory takes us to Paris. Whether in love or war, beware the Trojan horse. This is Cloak and Dagger from May 28, 1950. Are you willing to undertake a dangerous mission behind the enemy lines, knowing you may never return alive? What you have just heard is the question asked during the war to agents of the OSS, ordinary citizens who to this question answered, yes. This is Cloak and Dagger. Espionage, international intrigue. These are the weapons of the OSS. Today's story, The Trojan Horse, is suggested by actual incidents recorded in the Washington files of the Office of Strategic Services. A story that can now be told. August 1942. Report to OSS headquarters in Casablanca from Agent Henri Fontaine in France. Contact with girl Gabrielle Monet was made in the Bluebeard Cafe in Paris. I went there alone on the evening of the 15th and sent her a note with a waiter asking her to come to my table when she'd finished her song. 
Then I sat and waited. German officers were spread about the room as they were spread about all of occupied France. <laughs> I wondered what they would say if they knew why I had come. You send me this note, eh? Oui, mademoiselle. Will you join me? Why not? I drink with anyone these days. What will you have, eh? What have you? Let me taste from your glass. It is very bad wine. Huh? <laughs> you are right. Oh, the only time a girl may get good wine nowadays is when she drinks with the Bosch. Ah, never mind, I'm not thirsty. I enjoyed your song. Is that what you wanted to tell me? I think you are wasting your time here in Paris. Ah, Paris is wasting our time on Paris these days. I can offer you a better position in Casablanca. What did you say? Who are you? My name is Henri Fontaine. I too have a good position with the American OSS in North Africa. What are you saying? Before the Germans came to France, I was a poor poet. They did me a service. Now I'm a rich spy. You sit here in a room full of Germans and tell me this? What makes you think I will believe you? What makes you think I won't turn you over to the Germans if I do, <laughs> eh? Mademoiselle, I am not such a brave man. Neither am I a fool. We have kept you under observation for months. We know you better than you know yourself. Is there anything you'd like to know about yourself? What do you want of me? On our side, we have only the very best. Forgerers, counterfeiters, cutthroats, and uh, spies. <laughs> Will you join us? Ah, uh, just tell me what you want me to do. Agent Henri Fontaine in France to Agent Steve Lytel in Casablanca. Arrangements have been made to transport the girl Gabrielle Monet to the south of France and then to Casablanca, awaiting further instructions. Over. Bonjour. The roses will bloom early this year, I think. Oui, but uh, not too early, I hope. Good, good. I've been waiting for you. It is dark. I can't see you well. Is the girl with you? She is here. Gabby, say something so our friend will know you are here. I am tired. <laughs> Did you have difficulty reaching my safe in Paris? Uh, not too much. With swarms of displaced persons all over France to mingle with. And a slight bit of help along the way from the underground. It, it was not too bad. Good, good. Now follow me. I will take you to the fishing school. But I'm I know, so I know you're tired. Cheer up, Gabby. You'll have a nice long trip by water to rest up. Oh. And then another nice long trip by auto to oh. Casablanca. Oh, I like automobiles. In the old days, I like nothing better than a, a pleasant ride. 
But Gabi did not like the automobile trip to Casablanca. It was probably nothing like the old days. I drove up front alone while she was fitting the trunk of the car behind gasoline drums. <laughs> there were gunny sacks in a Moroccan rug thrown over her. Across everything, a heavy canvas cover lashed down with just enough air left for her to breathe. We drove that way over rough roads for several hours. When it got dark, I pulled over to a side lane and let her out. Gabby, come out, come out. Oh, oh, my back. It is broken. Oh. I, I will gladly um, massage it for you. Uh, you are too kind. Not at all. No, thank you. <laughs> Pity. Why did we stop? To give you a chance to uh, stretch your legs. And a cigarette if oh. you want one. Oh, I would die for one. Give, 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 give. I have one lit here. Uh. Mille merci. You see? I try to be gentle. <laughs> I try to make up for the inconvenience I am causing ah, you. Ça drôle. I remember what another poet once said. A German, by the way, but uh, not a Nazi. His name was Goethe. What did he say? He said, be gentle with women. Remember, they were made from a broken rib. <laughs> I am not amused. I'm sorry. You are always smiling. Do you enjoy the war, huh? I am a poet. There is poetic excitement in being behind the lines, working underground. I enjoy being a spy. Well, I am no matter hurry. You will do. You still have told me nothing. Why did they send for me? You remember a German named Paul Vogel? Paul... What do you know of him? Tell me. Not now. The time is late. But I must Throw know. Away your Why did you mention I his... said later. We have a long journey ahead. If we pass the border post, I will tell you. If we do not, <laughs> the words and minutes would only be wasted. Altala. I thought I would never reach the border. It's been a long trip. Where are you headed? Casablanca. Do you anything to declare? No, nothing. Let me see your passport. Here you are. All of a sudden, I spotted a small black dog sniffing and whining at the trunk of the car where Gabriel was hidden. The customs officer had not noticed him, and I knew I had to find some way to keep him from noticing. Ah, one becomes thief after so long a ride. While he looked over my passport, I went to the rear of the car, picked up the dog by the scruff of the neck, and uh, started to pet him. Well, your, your passport seems to be in order, but what's the matter with Jeff? <laughs> Nothing. Perhaps he does not like to be picked up. No. If he did, he wouldn't try to bite you. Better put him down. sniffing around that trunk. I felt like strangling that cute little black puppy. Well, put him down. I, uh, I have taken a fancy to him. Um, how do you feel about selling him to me, eh? Huh? Well, I... Uh, 
You, you, you are serious, monsieur? Oui, I like him. Come, come, how much, eh? Oh, take him. There are two more like him around somewhere. Uh, thank you. He will liven up the journey. Wait. Huh? Before you go. Yes? What is in your trunk? Huh? I said what is in your trunk. Let me put the dog in the car and then I will show you. The trunk. I will show you. You see? Gasoline drums. Yes, I see. Very well. Close the trunk. I may go? Of course. Thank you again for Joff. August 27, 1942. Report to OSS headquarters in Washington from Agent Steve Lytell in Casablanca. Fontaine and the girl arrived. I knew as soon as she walked in that Paul Vogel could not have forgotten her. I only hoped her memories of him weren't too strong. Now, as you know, Miss Monet, this is an international zone. We are, in effect, neutrals. In Casablanca, we pass each other in the streets. Germans, Americans, Vichy, and Free French. You can imagine what a hotbed of international intrigue we have here. Oh, I... I know nothing of that kind of intrigue. Then perhaps we can broaden your horizon. Hold it, Henri. Now listen to me, Yabby. The head of the German Armistice Commission in Casablanca is a man named Paul Vogel. Does that name mean anything to you? We knew each other once, before the war. Knew each other? He was an attaché to the German consulate in Paris. You almost married him once, isn't that so? That is my business. I'm afraid we've made it our business. Now, Gabby, we've kept close watch on you these past months, and we're sure that you're no Nazi or Vichy sympathizer. Oh, I hate them all for what they are doing to France. But Vogel, what are your feelings toward I, him? I, I haven't seen him in years. That's not answering my question. If he is a Nazi, I have no feelings toward him. All right, then. Now, the open secret here in North Africa is the planned American invasion. The closed secret is where and when. Now, that's what Paul Vogel wants to find out for German headquarters. Well, I still don't understand what I... You're to tell him, Cherie. What? Henri's right. You're to take up this friendship with him once more. Well, give him all the information he wants. You'll well, get it direct from us. What? Now, rest assured, it'll be the wrong information. You understand now? Uh, I'm beginning to. Good. We have a job for you at the Three Lanterns Cafe. Now, starting tomorrow... Agent Henri Fontaine and I were at the Three Lanterns Cafe the next night when Gabrielle opened there. The cafe was packed, but even the crowd around the bar, officers with ribbon chests, waterfront riffraff, and black marketeers, all of them were quiet when she sang. She was wearing a red dress, and in the spotlight her face looked smaller and whiter, and her hair looked blacker. There wasn't a man in the room who could take his eyes off her. I wondered how soon it would be before Paul Vogel came in and saw her, too. Uh, a girl like that could make you forget the war, eh, Steve? 
I've got a wife back in Syracuse. <laughs> can she wear red like that? My wife can be trusted. And this girl? She and Gogo were pretty close in the old days. I know my own kind. She can be trusted. I hope you're right. The success of the whole American invasion may hinge on it. A lot depends on how hard Vogel falls for that little bait up there on the bandstand. Steve, hmm? Vogel, he's just come in. That's all I wanted to see. Come on, let's get out of here. Hey, excuse us, sir. Pardon? Pardon? This table is free, waiter. It will do. Uh, oui, Vogel. You wish to see the wine list? Oh, I... That girl. How long has she been here? Uh, the singer, you mean? She started only tonight. Tell her to come to this table when she's finished. <laughs> you understand? Oui, I understand. No, you don't. You only think you do. Go tell her what I said. And bring a bottle of your best wine. It was you, Paul, when the waiter came to me. <laughs> How like you to walk back into my life so quietly after making so violent an exit. Ah, the world is small after all, Gabby. I'm amazed to find you in Casablanca. I can say the same of you. What are you doing here? I arrived here a few days ago, but I've been in North Africa for months. Tangier, Oran, Tunis, singing. How were you able to leave France yes. after the occupation? You should know how well I always got along with Germans. <laughs> you don't seem angry with me any longer, Liebchen. After that last time, six years ago... Life is too short to be angry for too long at anyone. <laughs> Besides, I was a fool to have been jealous over that silly blonde with the bad legs. I've even forgotten her name. Suzanne. Uh-huh. I see you have not forgotten. <laughs> oh, it's a wine. Gabby, how good it is to be with you again. How good it is to be with you, Paul. Ah, for you? For me. Now, we will drink to what is to be, Liebchen. You could have no better guide through Casablanca than I, Gubby. Come, what else would you like me to buy you from the marketplace? A scarf, perhaps? A gold scarf to put around your hair, yeah. Have you taken many girls to the marketplace, oh. huh? <laughs> Will you be forever jealous of me, Liebling? What is it, the French in you? Ah, it is the woman in me. <laughs> I imagine you are in great demand by the women here. The chief of the German Armistice Commission. How did you know that? I know more than you think. Oh? Would it interest you to know the name of one of the most important American agents in North Africa? Who? Steve Lytell. What do you know of him? I know him. And he knows the details of the planned American invasion. Come. I will buy you a gold scarf. Well, 
Have you nothing to say of what I just told you? I knew that already. I, too, have agents. However, thank you for telling me. I can promise you more than a gold scarf if you find out additional information for me. Is this possible? It might be. Very possible. Agent Lytell in Casablanca to OSS in Washington. The girl, Gabrielle Monet, has been in the paid employ of the German government here for several weeks, according to our plan, and we'll transmit to them the Dakar cover project. September 1942. Report to OSS headquarters from Agent Monet. I had a feeling that things were going too smoothly. I seemed to be holding my breath, waiting for something to go wrong. And on the night of the 29th, it did. Paul Vogel was in my room above the cafe. We were listening to my record of our favorite song. You'll have to go soon. It is late. Forget the time. Who would think it would come to this again, Gabriel? After that day in Paris, when we quarreled so. I remember that day. Mm. We showed poor judgment to argue out of doors. It was raining. I got a terrible cold in the nose. Kiss that poor nose. Oh, Paul, you really must go. But before you do, I, I have a paper for you in my purse. Dates when high officials will be in Casablanca. Stay I'll get it moment. for you. I want to uh, talk to you. you. You're hurting my arm. Let Germany me go, Paul. is paying you well for this information know, you are Paul, giving us. I know, Paul, please. Some of it is useful uh, information, but none of it uh, is as important as I would like. I will try to do better. You had better do better. You know what would happen, Gabi. If I found out you were crossing me... I would not cross you. It is nothing oh, for me to my... twist your arm oh. like this. Such a small arm. Think what I could do if I really tried to hurt you. You hurt me now because you don't trust me. What do you want? You claim to know this American like that. I do. You claim you get your information from I him. Do. Is that all he gives you? What about his love? Oh. Does he give you that too? Paul... The shoe is on the other foot. Now it is you who are jealous. <laughs> oh, how foolish of you. Think. Would I lie to you? Gabi. Gabi. Oh, Gabi. If you ever lie to me, I... I would rather see you dead at my feet than standing, looking at me, and lying. You hear what I say? Yes. Yes, I hear. I hear.
no more wine. I must keep my head clear to think of what you have just told me. Now are you satisfied that I'm earning my money? Mm-hmm. Dakar. So the Americans will land in a few weeks at Dakar. Very likely, very likely. Dakar is strategically important. It will be more important if the German fleet is there to stop the invasion. Yeah, yeah. That bungled attempt at a landing under de Gaulle's leadership failed, so the Americans probably figure <laughs> we would not dream that they would try it again in the same place. <laughs> One American, Steve Lytell, does not dream you nor this. Hmm. Are you going to tell German headquarters? But of course, this is something they will want to know. He believes it, Steve. Every word of it. Good. The German fleet is being sent to stop the invasion at Dakar. Good, Gabby. Good work. Steve, radio report. Just in from Gibraltar. What is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me tell it, Joff. General Clark will rendezvous on October 21st at Point Agreed near Algiers. You know what that means? Final preparations for the Iran invasion. Nothing must go wrong now. Nothing. November 4, 1942. Something very wrong happened. Paul came to my room just before I was ready to go downstairs to the cafe. Paul! Gabby, your friend Lytell has been playing you for a fool. Do you hear what I say? I don't understand. The invasion is not the car. I just learned myself it's to be Oran. Oran! And the German fleet, on my suggestion, is waiting in Dakar for oh, nothing. Paul. And will continue to wait Paul, for nothing. Paul, it can't be. Do you know be. what this will mean to me? Do you realize what the high command will do to me for please, this? Please, please, Paul. Ruin. Perhaps, perhaps your latest information was wrong about Oran. No, 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 no. It all ties in. They, the Americans, wanted me to believe... The... Gabi, what had you to do with this? Now what are you saying? I'm getting tired of your suspicions. One day you trust me, the next day you don't. You're French? What kind of French? Instead of questions, ask yourself this. Would I betray you, Paul? Not Germany, but you think. Look at me. Look at your Gabby and Elsa. I... I... No, of course not. Not you... You wouldn't dare. There may still be time to stop the Americans at Oran. I must get back to headquarters and let them know by radio. I should have done that right away instead of coming here. Oh, have a drink first. No, no, uh, later. I'll be back. It later. will not be easy for you to tell the high command this. A drink will fortify you. Mm. <laughs> yes. Perhaps. Perhaps you're right. One drink, then. <laughs> sat on the edge of the couch, his head in his hands. I remember thinking how very blonde was his hair, how large his hands. It was not difficult for me to drop half the L tablet from my purse into his glass as I poured the liquor over it. Here you are. Poor Paul. Pauvre petit. You look so tired. Drink. Where are you going? 
put on the record you like. We played it so often lately, Paul, that one of these days it will just rise up in protest. <laughs> You're tired? Uh, no. No, why should I be tired? I must go now. I've had my drink. Hear my record through, then you will go. No. No, now. I must go now. You're so good to me, Carpe. You love me. You love me very much. His head had fallen on his arms and rested on the table. The tablet had begun to work as I knew it would. I got the automatic pistol that had been given to me by the Americans and... shot him twice through his very blonde head. Report from Agent Gabriel Monet. Well, it ought to come any minute now, news of the invasion. I've had word that Eisenhower and Clark were in Gibraltar on November the 8th. I'll let you both know as soon as something comes through on the radio. Are you all right, Debbie? <laughs> Me, don't concern yourself. You did what you had to do. It took courage. Well, if I had thought about it longer, perhaps I would not have had the courage. You cannot know. I think I do. He meant a great deal to me. A long time ago. I killed him. Listen to me. I told you something once that the poet Goethe said. He also said this. Give up what perished long ago. And let us love what's living. Do you hear, Gabby? Do you hear? That's it, the code name. Robert's arrived. The invasion's begun, do you hear? Did you hear, Gabby? Did you? Yes. Yes, yes, I heard. And once again, the report of an OSS agent is closed with the words... Mission accomplished. A further adventure in black warfare is next week's Cloak and Dagger. Heard in today's story were Jane White, Barry Kruger, Leon Janney, Joseph Julian, Carl Weber, Raymond Edward Johnson, Guy Sorrell, and Bernie Gould. Script was by Winifred Wolfe. Music under the direction of John Gart. Today's true OSS adventure was based on the book Cloak and Dagger by Corey Ford and Alistair McBain. This has been a Lewis G. Cowan production under the supervision and direction of Sherman Marks. Stay tuned for the second big mystery, High Adventure, on NBC.
rendezvous at the Three Lanterns Cafe in Casablanca for a French chanteuse on assignment for the OSS, looking for one Paul Vogel. That was Cloak and Dagger with the Trojan Horse from May 28, 1950, based on events of May of 1942, the eve of the Allied invasion of North Africa. And now brace yourself for a shorter trip into the Diary of Fate. It's next, and this is Skywave Audio Theater. A revolutionary advance in energy, at least by 1948 standards, falls into the hands of one Walter Vincent. Well, if you're familiar with Rio Grande cracked gasoline from Calling All Cars, you'll be on track to cash in on this energy advance. Add something as simple as a bad fountain pen and your fortune awaits. Does our narrator uh, take some pleasure in Walter Vincent's theft and events following? Well, the Whistler did that kind of thing, so why not the guardian of the Diary of Fate? This is a story called Walter Vincent from the Diary of Fate of May 25th, 1948. The Diary of Fate. Fate plays no favorites. It could happen to you. Book 97, page 854. In the Diary of Fate. Here it is. The name Walter Vincent. Occupation chemist. Yes, Walter. For four years you have been an employee of the Randall Foundation for scientific research. And in that time, you have come to realize how wrong you were to select science as a life work. Although you were diligent and accurate, you lack inventiveness. And many times during recent months, your wife Carol has pointed out in no uncertain terms the long and fruitless road which lies ahead of you. This realization brought you to temptation and a choice. Now for a moment, I, fate, Look ahead to a single instant in your life. An instant of decision. I don't intend to give up everything now, Walter, no matter what it means. Good. We still have a chance if we work together. You see, Kramer is going to give Philip that letter at the masquerade. I don't understand, Walter. And that means just one thing. I'll have to go to the masquerade in his place. And I'll have to get rid of Philip. In that decision, Walter Vincent, you will find your goal and your destruction. Soon it will be time for a further entry under your name. When I have written, I will read from the record of Walter Vincent in the Diary of Fate.
Walter Vincent, an infamous decision was made. Yet in the final analysis, it was a little thing, seemingly insignificant, that determined the inevitable outcome. It is ever thus. Remember, Walter Vincent, where it all started? You were driving home from the funeral of Professor Rudolf Teigman, an associate of the Foundation, who had died suddenly of a heart attack. Your wife and Philip Webb, also a chemist at the Foundation, were talking as you drove through the heavy rain. He was a great scientist, old Teigman. The Foundation is certainly going to miss him. Strange, isn't it? How suddenly and unexpectedly it can happen. Just like that, it's all over. Yeah, that's right, Carol. I only hope I can achieve half as much in my life as he did in his. I'd consider it a lifetime well spent. What? How can you say that, Philip? Professor Tigman was a lonely old man. He never really lived in his whole life. He never had any money or fun. Just work and more work. That's all he knew. Yes. But look at all the splendid things he accomplished. And where did that get him? I bet he wished plenty of times he'd enjoyed life more as he went along. Believe me, I'm not going to stake my happiness on a future I may never see. Oh, excuse me, Carol. This next corner will be fine, Walter. Oh, okay, Phil. Glad to drive you on home, though. No, thanks. But there is one thing. Yeah? I'm going out to Tigman's lab tomorrow, and I'd appreciate it if you'd come along and sort of help me put his things in order out there. Why, sure, Phil. Glad to. Fine. See you tomorrow, then. Goodbye. Goodbye. Walter, I meant what I said about that future. I'm completely fed up with the way we live. Oh, Carol, darling, don't talk like that. We'll get our chance one of these days. One of these days can be a long, long time. I'm not going to wait much longer. Well, you won't have to, honey. With Tigman gone, there are openings all down the line. Oh. And I'm almost a cinch to head my department. Well, we'll see, Walter. We'll see. Yes, Walter. A pressing impatience in Carl's heart is like a whip to your ambition. Because you do anything to make her happy. But the next morning, when the promotions were announced, the one you expected went to Philip. It was a humiliating shock to you. And you knew how Carol would take it. By the time you arrived at Tigman's remote laboratory, you had regained control of yourself. And nothing was said at the promotion as you helped Philip pack the clutter of apparatus, supplies, and papers. And then, Walter, a little thing happened. I guess you can get most of that stuff in this box, Walter. Yes, I think so. By the way, what was Tigman working on, Phil? Do you know? I have no idea. I used to be his assistant, but for the last six months, they had me back in the office. I hope there's something in these papers that'll tell us. Yeah. Well, I'll make a list of everything I put in this box. Fine. I'll go get something to carry the books in. Yeah. Oh, blast it anyway. What happened? Oh, my pen had leaked. I've smeared ink all over. Oh, there's probably a blotter in that bottom drawer of the desk. Be back in a minute. You opened the desk drawer, Walter, 
And as you searched for a blotter, your eyes fell on something else. Something destined to change your entire life. A notebook. At one glance, you realized what was in it. The results of the last six months of intense research by the great Tigman. A completely revolutionary method of cracking crude oil. You heard Philip returning, and quickly, you slipped the notebook into your pocket and turned to face him. Uh, oh, by the way, Phil, I haven't congratulated you on your promotion yet. I think it's great. Thanks, Walter. I, I appreciate that. It was between us, you know, and, well, I thought maybe you Oh, did... I'd resent it? No, no, not me. You'll make a better executive than I anyway. I'd be lost out of the lab. Oh, thank you, Walter. I'm taking my vacation soon, and when I get back, let's get together, huh? Sure. Oh, uh, by the way, what are you working on, Walter? Petroleum. Okay. Yes, and I think I may have something, too. Oh, don't say anything about it, Phil. You see, I'm, I'm not sure yet, but if I'm on the right track, it'll be big. Very big. <laughs> Walter, because of a leaking fountain pen, you alone had found Tigman's notebook. You could have turned it over to the foundation, but you had other ideas. In the days that passed, you made certain that nowhere else among Tigman's papers was there a hint of what he had been working on. You checked and tested his formula. It was complete and accurate. Then, at last, you were ready. The startling announcement came out that you, Walter Vincent, had devised a new and revolutionary method for refining crude oil. This is amazing, Walter. As the director of the Randall Foundation, I congratulate you. And leave it to me, my boy. I'll see to it that you get a position at once where you can really exercise your ability. Well... Thank you, Dr. Crane. And congratulations, Walter. Thank you. That was great publicity for the outfit. And say, I want you to pose with Dr. Kramer here, and then we'll get some individual portraits, some action sure. shots of you in the lab, too. You know, the papers are going to eat this up. Yes. Just three short weeks after you had stolen Professor Teigman's notebook, Walter, your world was completely changed. You had a new job at more than double your old salary. You were known in scientific circles as a very promising young man. And Carol, of course, was delighted. But the change, Walter, had been brought about by your choice for evil. And already, forces were gathering against you. Even as you relished your newfound glory, and Carol chattered happily about a forthcoming party, another little thing happened. Oh, Walter, this will be the first party we've gone to in years where I can really feel like somebody. Yes, I know. Well, I told you our break would come one day. Oh, I'm glad it's a masquerade. I've got the most wonderful idea for a costume. Marie Antoinette. Oh? But, well going to be expensive. Oh, darling, I don't care if it is. We can afford it now, and if it'll make you happy, you... Oh, I'll get it, Carol. Hello? Walter Vincent speaking. Uh, this is Dr. Kramer, Walter. 
Do you know when Philip Webb is coming back from his vacation? Oh, the day after tomorrow, I think, Doctor. Oh, that's too bad. Why? What's the matter, Doctor? Well, I'm leaving town tonight, and I wanted to see him before I left. A very strange thing just happened, Walter. It was like getting a message from the grave. Uh, a message from the grave? What do you mean, Doctor? An envelope addressed to Philip just arrived. It was evidently lost in the mail. You see, it's from Professor Tyson. It must be about the work he was doing when he died. Yes, Walter. A little thing. A misaddressed envelope. A letter lost in the mail now suddenly loomed up in your life as a huge stumbling block that would topple your whole world into ruin. You knew that somehow you had to get that letter or you were trapped. But you realized that the first thing you had to do was tell Carol. Tell her the whole thing. You had to know if you could depend on her. And that's the way it happened, Carol. That's the whole story. Well, don't just stand there. Say something. It's such a shock. I don't know what to say. You've got to get that letter, Walter. Some way you've got to get it. That's what I wanted you to say, Carol. I had to know if I could count on your help. I don't intend to give up everything now, Walter. No matter what it means. Good. We still have a chance, if we work together. You see, Kramer's going to give Philip that letter at the dance. I don't understand, And that means one thing. I'll have to go to the masquerade in his place. And I'll have to get rid of Philip. Yes, Walter. Because of a fountain pen that leaked. A little thing. You were faced with a decision... And your choice was for evil. Now, because of another little thing, a misaddressed envelope, you were threatened with exposure and disgrace. A net of circumstances was closing around you. Soon there would be no escape. Soon I will write again under your name in The Diary of Fate. worried days later that you, Walter, finally added the last detail to your method of murder. Philip had returned from his vacation, and you had talked to him. Then you explained your scheme to Carol. Oh, Walter, I'm afraid. Are you sure there's no other way? Positive. I've looked for that letter every place I possibly could since Kramer's has been gone. I can't find it. There's nothing else we can do. All right, Walter. Now listen, I've talked to Philip. He's going to the masquerade as Pinocchio. He's got a mask that covers the whole head, and it'll fit me. I told him today that I had to go to New York, so he thinks you're going to the dance with him. I want to be sure a lot of people know that. That'll be easy. 
Then what? Saturday evening, I'll get on the train here and get off when it stops at Maplewood. You meet me there with the car. And bring you back here. Yes. Then I'll take care of Philip. We'll go to the dance, get the letter from Kramer, and leave. I'll catch a plane. I've already got the reservation under the name of Jones. I'll overtake the train and get back on it. All you know is that Phil was a little high when he took you home. Oh, Walter, what if something goes wrong? Nothing can go wrong, I tell you. Not if we're careful and use our heads. The hardest time will be the dance. We'll really have to play our parts there. And play them well. Yes, Walter. From now on, you'd have to play a part. And play it well. For murder is a hazardous game. Where they would do the most good, you'd drop casual bits of information about your trip to New York. And that Philip was escorting Carol to the dance. And finally, on Saturday night, you even fixed it so David Sloan, the Foundation's public relations man, was at the station with Carol to see you off. So if you can drop in and see him, it'll be worth a feature story in his new magazine. Well, I'll certainly try, David. It all depends on how much time I have. Well, Mr. Vincent, busy or not, you better find time somewhere to write me every day. Understand? <laughs> Sorry you're going to miss that masquerade tonight, old boy. That's the one thing nobody really should miss. Uh-huh, don't I know it. And I'm sending Carol with Philip Webb. Pinocchio and Marie Antoinette should make quite a pair. Hey, you think I can trust them together? <laughs> I think so. Pinocchio's made of wood, you know. Yes, but there are no <laughs> strings on him either. <laughs> I'll keep an eye on them, Walter. Have a good time in the city and hurry back. I will, David. Better get aboard, Carol. Now, don't forget one block south of the station at Maplewood. And don't be late. I won't. Don't worry. I'll get rid of David and leave right away. <laughs> As the train traveled a few miles to Maplewood, you talked with the porter about your compartment, tipped him lavishly, spoke to the conductor, and made certain that several of the passengers were aware of your presence and would remember you. Then as the train pulled to a stop in Maplewood, you stepped off quickly, quietly, melted into the crowd, a few minutes later, you were with Carol in your car, speeding back the way you had come. Better slow down a little, Carol. We have to hurry, Walter. Slow down, I said. All we need right now is to be picked up for speeding. That'd fix things fine. When we get to Phillips, shall I wait for you? No. Go on home, put on your costume. I'll pick you up in his car. All right. We're almost there. It's down on the next block. Okay, turn here and stop. I'll walk the rest of the way. Walter. What? Walter, be careful. Don't worry, this will be easy. The tough part's going to be that dance afterwards, and don't forget that for a minute. Now go on home and get dressed. i got to get going. What is... Why, Walter, I thought you were on your way to New York. Well, I'm supposed to be, uh... You, uh... You're still going to the dance, aren't you? Of course. I'm just dressing now. Well, let me in, Philip. Yeah, I gotta talk to you. Sure, come in. What is it, Walter? What's wrong? Is, uh... 
Is anyone else here now? No. Walter, what's the matter? Philip, uh, are you going to be alone tomorrow? Why, yes. Yes, I am. All day? You're not expecting anyone? Not going out? No, not until nine tomorrow night. Why? Oh, that's fine, fine. Philip, I'm in a jam. A bad one. I I want to stay here tonight. Could, Could you help me out? Now, wait a minute. I think you'd better start at the beginning and tell me all about it. All right, but... Oh... Is that whiskey there in the decanter? I really need a drink, Phil. Well, I'll get it for you. I've never seen you like this, Walter. You're in bad shape. Oh, here you are. Thanks. Well, Philip, it's like this. Oh, the glass. I'm sorry, Phil. It, it slipped. Oh, forget it. You'd better sit down, Walter. I'll pick up the pieces. It's nothing. Go on, sit down, Walter. Walter, the poker, what are you... Yes, Walter. Killing Philip was simple. For a moment you stared down at him, lying dead in front of his fireplace. Then you moved quickly. You took his keys from his pocket, set his watch ahead to midnight, and smashed the crystal. Arranged the room to look as if he had fallen and struck his head while replacing a light bulb in the chandelier. Then you entered his bedroom. And when you came out again, you were Philip Webb, fully dressed in the bizarre costume of Pinocchio. A few minutes later in Philip's car, you picked up Carol and drove to the masquerade. Walter, you're sure everything's all right? You... You didn't make any mistake. No, no, I didn't. Now stop worrying me, will you? You keep watching me in there, and just as soon as I get that letter from Dr. Kramer, you fake a headache so we can leave. All right. And don't let me get stuck with anybody where I have to talk too much. I won't. All right. We've got to go on in. And for heaven's sake, act like nothing's happened. Everything depends on this now. Pinocchio, you old rascal. Get up, terrific. Oh, you like it? Phil, that's a wonderful costume. I got to get a picture of that one. What a head and what a face. I told him it was going to be the best in the place. That's great, Carol. It really is. Say, you're rather pretty good yourself, Marie Antoinette. Thank you. <laughs> sure, too bad old Walter had to miss this party. We're really going to have a time tonight. <laughs> Kramer hasn't shown up yet, Carol, but he should be here any minute. How am I doing? Heard your comment? You're doing fine. I don't think anybody suspects a thing. Just keep it up. Don't worry, I will. We can't slip now. Oh, Philip, uh, Philip, uh, pardon me, folks. Uh, Phil, Dr. Kramer just came in. He wants to see you a minute. He's back there in the corner. Oh, uh, thanks a lot, David. Uh, I'll go right away. Oh, I'll wait here, Philip. Hello there, Philip, or should I say Pinocchio. That certainly is a fine costume. Oh, hello, Dr. Kramer. What I wanted to see you about, Philip, is a letter. <laughs> it's lost in the mail, I presume. You see, it's for you, from Professor Tigman. From Tigman? Yes, I have it here. Do you want it now? I can just easily keep it until Monday. No, no, I'll take it now, Doctor, and thank you very much. Oh, Philip. 
Excuse me, Doctor. Just go. I'm sorry, but my head is splitting. Would you mind taking me home? Oh, that's too bad, Carol. Of course not. Come along. I've got it, Carol. I've got the letter. Now nobody will ever know. Now we're set for life. Yes, Walter, it was all over now. You had the letter. The perfect alibi for murder. All you had to do was leave the dance, get back on the train, and you were safe. But take heed, you who listen, lest you think fate unjust, a conspirator in evil. In a few moments, I will write for the last time under the name Walter Vincent. When I have written, I will read from the Diary of Fate. that your masquerade had been successful. Yes, your impersonation of Philip Webb had been perfect. And now safety lay only a few feet away. But then, Walter, another little thing happened. Let's get going, Carl. Oh, oh, my heel. Carol, Carol, what's the matter? The heel of my slipper broke and caught my skirt. Uh, Let me get it. I... Attention, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the high spot of the evening. Yes, friends, this has been a wonderful party, and now... Hey, hey, wait a minute. Don't let that Pinocchio get away. Hey, hold it. Hey, hold it. I've got a big surprise for you. You can't leave now. I've got to leave. The Judges no. Committee has selected the outstanding masquerader of the evening, none other than Pinocchio. <laughs> and now, folks, now, folks, it's midnight. And you're first, my boy, so remove your mask, Pinocchio, and take a bow, Mr. Philip Webb. Remove her mask? No, no, <laughs> on, He's back. We'll give you a hand, hand, Phil. Come on, Mr. No, stop it, stop it. I got it all. Why, it's not Phil Webb. It's Walter Vincent. Yes, Walter. Your masquerade was perfect. So perfect that you won first prize and destroyed your own alibi. And now as the seconds tick away inexorably toward the moment of your execution for murder, your wife Carol, for her part in the crime, sits alone in her prison cell, waiting hopelessly for an empty future. Now it is time to close the book. Another entry has been duly noted on the pages of eternity. And justice has been served. 
In the case of Walter Vincent, as in the cases of all mortals, I, fate, am but the instrument of a plan. And the countless little things that happen are the tools with which I work. Because of a fountain pen that leaked, this man, Walter Vincent, was given an opportunity. And he chose for evil. Then, because the heel of a slipper broke and delayed his escape for a few critical seconds, I, faith, brought him to justice. Ponder well the moral, you who listen. And remember, there is a page for you in the diary of fate. Cast included Herbert Lytton, Tom Brown, Gloria Blondell, Peter Leeds, John Arthur, Ray Erlenborn, Ivan Dittmars, and Hal Sawyer. Diary of Fate is a Larry Finley transcription. Brought to you from Hollywood. idea that could be updated in these times of alternate energy, Lost Letter and All, a story about petroleum and one Walter Vincent. That was page, what, 800 or so from The Vast Diary of Fate. It came to us from May 25th, 1948. You would thought they would have uh, detected the lies more quickly from Walter Vincent since he was dressed as Pinocchio in that masked ball. Did his nose grow longer? Apparently not. Next week, a strange story, if it even is a story, from the CBS Radio Workshop, and we'll have some other adventures in sound, too. I'm Norman Gilliland, inviting you to join me then for Skywave Audio Theatre.